World Wrestling Federation presents a double main event. The Immortal Hulk Hogan versus 476 pounds of the earthquake. Plus, World Wrestling Federation champion, the Ultimate Warrior, defends against ravishing Rick Rude in the confines of a steel cage. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 157 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, alone once again at the Oaken Table, but I am not flying solo for the second straight week because it is part two of our three-part series looking at the year 1990 in the World Wrestling Federation. Part one, of course, last week. You can check it out in the archives if you missed it at squaredcirclegazette.com. But... Joining me now for part two from the Top Rope Nation podcast by way of Cleveland, Ohio, a longtime friend of mine. Welcome back to the show, Kyle Ross. And Kyle, after part one last week, so glad to have you back. How the hell are you? I am doing great. I told you before we pressed record, I don't think I have done more preparation and more overthinking for a singular podcast episode in my entire podcast career. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i like you on this one. This is, this is uh, again, it was part of the reason why this was such an enticing topic to us, just the, the, the amount of depth, uh, not only on the notes that we're going to get to today, but obviously with the possibilities that we're also going to talk about. This is, this is a loaded one. Yeah, the whole debate over what they could have done with the Warrior title run, specifically going into SummerSlam, I think is a long conversation to be had. And I'm glad there's no one I would rather have it with than you, Liam. So I'm very oh. fired up to do this. Much, much obliged, much obliged. Uh, the sentiment is obviously reciprocal. Uh, the overarching theme of this three-part series that we were looking to break down and tackle 1990, seeing if the kind of historical narrative that this is kind of a, a bit of a write-off year, a boring year, uh, that kind of is kind of inconsequential in the bigger landscape of things, whether that's actually accurate or not, or whether the moves they made in 1990 actually had kind of a bit of a domino effect on the bad year they had in 1991 that led to the issues uh, that beleaguered them throughout the early 90s. Today, obviously, from in part one that we just mentioned, uh, we covered from the start of 1990 through to WrestleMania VI, uh, covering the Warriors' road to the top, uh, road to being crowned at Mania VI, the issues that went on there, not as cut and dry, uh, as maybe some people think it is. Uh, the Warrior was looking pretty good up to about February 23rd, I think we figured it. Uh, and then things kind of started to take a downturn. And as we pick it up here, part two, we are going to be looking at WrestleMania through to SummerSlam at the top of the card first and foremost. We're going to evaluate the uh, potential alternatives, the options they actually had, other directions they may have gone down and may have been better served to go down at the top of the card, as well as looking after that at the other stories and the issues that were going on throughout the rest of the company at the time so kyle i know that kind of one of our big takeaways on the last one was that uh warrior in that last month those promos they were looking pretty ropey yeah they were and i had mentioned a story about my dad you know walking in the room who my dad not a wrestling fan but he knew enough to i guess ask cursory questions and when he was observing the warriors promos he asked me oh warrior he's gonna become a bad guy now huh and that probably wasn't a good sign for a guy that you were about to make your <laughs> alleged top baby face, or at least your 1A baby face for the summer to Hogan's 1B. Because as we're about to go into uh, in great depth on this episode, they may never have truly been committed to making Warrior number one. And I don't really think they were after watching all the television. I think they were just sort of, I, this was a 
Randy Savage esque in 1988. Hey, we know we're going to go back to Hogan. Let's just see how this guy does in the interim. And the answer, pretty clearly to me, is not as good as Randy Savage did. One thing that kind of came up in some of the feedback to part one that I kind of wanted to uh, ask you here, actually, Kyle. Some people were talking about how when they listened to kind of the timeline of events that we laid out, they kind of got the feeling that the WWF themselves had kind of cooled on the idea of Warrior even before Mania 6. Is that an impression you got? Maybe. Uh, one of the first notes we have when we get into the fallout, the aftermath of WrestleMania, seems to indicate that. I think when they got the buy rate information... And the business numbers started trickling in is probably what cemented it ultimately. Pun intended. Uh, and obviously, with, with that said, uh, I should credit, of course, Dave Meltzer on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for some of the notes that we're going to get to today, because there's a lot of them. Uh, we talked about the disappointing numbers for WrestleMania 6 at the end of part one, so you can go back and check them out there. Uh, but after those numbers came in, uh, there was very much a quick backtrack on the wire as the top guy in the promotion. Hulk Hogan, uh, as we discussed, was the guy given the hot new heel in town to work with, which was Earthquake. Uh, Ultimate Warrior instead stuck in a retread feud with Ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, I kind of... I have this duality where there are kind of embers of creativity to what they did with Rick Rude as the only man to ever beat the warrior, the hardcore training vignettes, the new haircut. Uh, but it was, you know, the, the Rude thing was old news. And for a guy that had been, you know, a chicken shit heel for three years, they needed to do a lot more than a short back in sides <laughs> to have, to have him seen as a guy on the level of the warrior, the guy who had just beaten Hulk Hogan. Yeah. I think that's a common sentiment for most people that this feud just did not work and really, got Warriors title run off to a, you know, a, kind of a bit of a rough start, especially compared to Hogan's well-done feud with Earthquake. So having rewatched the summer television, this Warrior Rude feud really, even more so than I remembered, stood out as a dud. And I think the first issue is, Liam, that since the Warrior had already beaten Rude to win back the IC title, not that long before, it had been less than a year, that hurt the feud. The, it kind of, you know, it, it's not like, like even as a kid, I remember that. You know, I'm like, Rude's like, well, I beat you before for a title. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, yeah, but he beat you back. This same story that they were trying to do would have worked better, in my opinion, say in 92 WCW with Rude and Sting, where right. Rude was still the U.S. champ, having beaten Sting for that title, and Sting had subsequently won the world title. So the, the whole claim, oh, I beat you before for a title, it would have, I think, carried more weight because Sting would not have already had that win back. And they kind of went in that direction in WCW, uh, not, never for a singles pay-per-view match, but uh, they, they did run an angle after Super Bowl, but that's a different story for a different day. Also, let's remember how Rude beat the Warrior for the Intercontinental title. Yes. It was in a chicken shit way, to use your term. Bobby Heenan hooked the leg, and, and you know it was a cheap win. It was a cheap heel win, which is fine. I mean, back in the day, most heel wins were cheap wins. But like, it's not like you thought Rick Rude was at the level of the Warrior because of that win. It was always portrayed as a chicken shit win. Yeah, in the summer of '89, where Warrior was going to get his revenge, and he did. So. Yeah, I just, I, I don't think people saw Rude on that level. There needed to be more showing 
i.e. winning matches by Rude, than telling just us how good he was in those vignettes. And did you, I assume you watched most of them? I watched them all. Okay. I got two words to, to describe them. Unconvincing and repetitive. Yeah, I, I can't really argue with that. As, as much as I appreciate Rude gunning it on the beach, they hit that same thing again and again. And it, you know, it bleeds, obviously, not just to the vignettes, but when they do the live promos, too, they're saying the same thing. It's just Heenan saying, this man's beat you before. And again, it's like we'd had, like you said, the entire summer of 89. You know, those primetime wrestling shows, it's Gorilla just ripping apart the fact that it was it was a cheap win at WrestleMania 5. It wasn't a true win. And and just like you mentioned, the, the optics, too, of Rude and Sting being kind of similar heights, and similar, you know, Sting doesn't have the jacked up frame that Warrior did. So when you mentioned that as a better comparison, I think it's accurate because oh, wow. what, Warrior and Rude, I just think that, you know, visually, Rude was, you know, kind of pretty, uh, you know, pretty lean compared to the Warrior. Warrior's obviously juiced to the gills. And I just think it looks, you know, the optics of it, it looks like he's a guy that Warrior would smash through in a fair fight. And I just don't think that people could buy it. Yeah, and they didn't. It, it, when I say unconvincing with the vignettes, it almost seemed like Rude, as a performer, was like trying to like convince himself and not the audience. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it almost just felt like by the time you hit the fifth or sixth one, you're observing this person who's just, they're getting more yelly with it. That's something <laughs> we see with a lot of modern performers with promos where maybe they don't believe in the material. And so their way to counteract is they just start yelling it louder. <laughs> but that's not really effective. And yeah, I just, I was shocked how many of those vignettes there were. They ran for ages, man. They were like weeks of them. Yeah. And it didn't really help, I thought, that like Warrior wasn't really offering a rebuttal. <laughs> it just felt like he was just, I don't know, sitting back in the cut listening to this stuff and not offering a response. So that also didn't work. It just felt like it, here's this heel with this unconvincing call out. The champion's not even bothering to respond. Why should I care? Well, that's it. Like, Rude, yeah, they're doing those vignettes with Rude. And then, like, I don't really, I don't remember Warrior doing much on television for the first month. Like, I remember, like, they introduced him as the champion where he runs out and then just runs off again. And, like, Rude's vignettes are running while this is going on. Yeah, that, exactly. That was the only time I think they showed him on the syndicated television, Warrior. Was, I saw that, too, where they introduced him, he runs out. Goes up all four corners. They're playing the music, and he just runs away. <laughs> there, there was no interview with Gene Okerlund or Brother Love, like you know, bragging about what he'd done. That's shocking, by yeah. the way. Like, hey, you just beat Hulk Hogan. How does that feel? There was nothing like that. No, nothing about. It. I mean, and to, you know, again, like on the night, it feels if you're watching it, you don't know what's going on. Like this incredible shift of oh my god the warrior beating clean and then afterwards like you say they it's almost like they were afraid to acknowledge just how because hogan does the promo talking about how you know where he talks about how they were neck and neck but his heart skipped a beat and then you know before he knew it it was over and it's like they they had they gave hogan the chance to explain it but warrior didn't get anything yeah he didn't get a chance to brag or make it seem special just again it goes back to what we said at the top maybe they didn't want to make warrior seem superior to hogan well, and it's interesting to note here as we go along the note that you mentioned uh, earlier in the show about the kind of the some of the clues that maybe they had kind of given up on Warrior. Well, not necessarily given up, but certainly kind of softened on the idea to go with him as the top guy came a little bit earlier because the Hogan Earthquake interaction had already started. Earthquake 
challenge the winner of Hogan and Warrior on television uh, prior to WrestleMania. So he'd actually, they kind of made the big deal that Earthquake was going to wrestle the winner, Hogan versus Warrior, Earthquake waiting in the wings. And there was a note in the Observer as Meltzer was kind of trying to put two and two together. And I, I stress this was in, I believe, mid-February when this happened or just or, or heading towards uh, the main event where he said that Hogan and Earthquake were scheduled on the house shows after Mania. So the fact that Earthquake challenged the winner, Meltzer thought kind of told you something. And as it turns out, it didn't. At the houses, when they actually run the first Hogan-Earthquake matches after WrestleMania, and this is before the big angle they do, surprisingly little box office steam on top, says Dave Meltzer. Uh, Warrior versus Mr. Perfect, uh, which was Warrior's first uh, match as champion, drawing decently, uh, but Warrior's reception, says Meltzer, has been getting more and more lukewarm. In cities where he doesn't appear, when they mention his name, there are now more boos than cheers. Uh, he's still cheered at the houses when he's there, but not like he used to be, and the crowds are still only fair. The real test, says Meltzer, is the rude feud, which was going to kick off at the end of May. Quick note. It was the February 25th superstars where Earthquake said nobody, including Hogan and the Warrior, would be able to survive the Earthquake. Then on March 24th, eight days prior to Mania, Earthquake on Brother Love again, and he talks about only Hogan. Mm. Kind of seems to fit the timeline we discussed in part one yeah. with McMahon making the decision to put Warrior over at Mania. But at the same time, I think the concession was Hogan's going to get Earthquake, the yeah. hot heel. Yeah, which clearly they planned all along, was that was in their head. Hogan's getting Quake, which, <laughs> curious when you think about it. Yeah, and Earthquake was saying, oh, after what I did to Hogan, he's, there's no way he's going to win at WrestleMania. And what he did was, um, you know, he gave him the Earthquake splash after the Bravo match on Superstars. So I think once they did that, and remember, he didn't do the same to the Warrior. Hogan had saved Warrior before Earthquake was able to do the sit-down splash on him. So I think at that point, yeah. Okay, Warrior wins, but Hogan gets Quake. Yeah, and Quake, Quake subsequently takes credit on TV afterwards, saying, I'm the reason you lost to the Warrior. Again, oh, yeah, that made it very overt. The weeks <laughs> after media, that Earth, when Earthquakes, yeah, the reason Hogan lost was because of me. So it was clear um, right away on the television after WrestleMania that they were going to Hogan Earthquake. And it was just as clear that they were going to Rude Warrior, because I think the Rude vignette started airing immediately after. Straight away. Was- yeah, straight away. Now, while this is going on, and this is a note that obviously you uh, found and kind of added to the notes here, Kyle. April 5th, the WWF purchases Titan Towers, uh, the uh, the famed glass building that obviously people identify with the company now as WWE headquarters. Uh, Bruce said that they were originally going to buy the IBM complex in Stamford, Connecticut, uh, and they had a large sprawling studio with multiple buildings uh, set up. But Vince wanted everybody to be together, uh, so they just bought something different. And of course, Vince puts in a gym. <laughs> I'm thinking about whether or not I want to mention this. I've been in that gym before. Really? Yeah. How is it? It's a gym. <laughs> a lot of people in there? there? No, not none special. There's a funny picture of a ripped Triple H to greet you right when you walk in, which I had a big old laugh about. But oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, no, right when you walk in, just a jacked picture of Triple H to greet you. See, I would expect Vince's muscle and fitness cover to be on there, maybe. Maybe it was. I didn't see it. I was too busy laughing about the Triple H. (laughs) And the reason I threw this in the notes is when we talk about uh, WWE and a creative rut that it falls into over the summer, moving buildings, you know, changing offices, you know, that takes time out of the day, week, month. And 
maybe that plays a role. I don't know. It could be it could be a very minor thing, but you know, when you look at the creative rut the company did fall in, hey, they moved. Maybe they got, and we're going to talk about the WBF, obviously. This is just maybe another kind of distraction. Not a large distraction, obviously. If there's a better office space, you should move. But, um, and if, if they did it on April 5th, they probably already had some TV in the can anyway at that point. So I just thought it was an interesting thing to throw on the timeline. Yeah, t- yeah timing is curious, and, 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 and iron that up is obviously noteworthy. Now, by early May, one month on, the initial... SummerSlam 1990 uh, booking discussions uh, get going, and there is consideration given to Hogan versus Warrior at SummerSlam, uh, which we touched on at the end of part one as well. But they did change their minds. Uh, they shot the big angle at the May 15th tapings. And I, it feels like this is around the time where they kind of decide to extend the two feuds they've got for six whole months. Earthquake squashes Hogan on the Brother Love show at the May 15th tapings. Uh, a very, very well done angle with Hogan kind of clutching at the crucifix. Yeah, particular thing of beauty there. McMahon checks on him from the booth. Uh, this will likely be Hogan's last appearance before SummerSlam, says Meltzer, to set up the big match. Uh, there is an additional little note here, but I think probably now's the time to talk about uh, the big angle, Hogan and Quake. Yeah, this was really well done, and it drew a ton of heat from the live crowd, like, immediately. So... It was kind of like a summit deal, right? Where they, Earthquake and Quake had both agreed, or Hogan and Earthquake had both agreed to come on Brother Love. Well, Hogan's out first. Then Jimmy Hart comes out without the Earthquake. Says Earthquake has his huge fever and won't be able to make it. Obviously, you can tell what's going to happen next. Hogan turns his back. Quake runs out. Nails Hogan with a good chair shot. Does three sit-down splashes. The crowd is reacting just like you want them to. There's a lot of gasps in the crowd showing faces of the audience even back then. Yeah. On the TV, which I thought did add to the angle because they were showing kids and women like, oh, my God. Like, well, they were, oh, they were, no. <laughs> they were showing people reacting, which is kind of the key. Yes. It, it got it over rather than, you know, it, it's a lot better than, you know, two dudes like running their hand through their hair after two and nine tenth kickouts. This worked a lot better, I thought. Yeah, this was a tremendous five star angle uh, from Hogan and Earthquake that worked on every level. And I had forgotten that Vince ran out uh, to check on him. Yeah, he was barking orders. orders. Yeah, get him out of here! Get him out of here! Yeah, it was very rare Vince would do that in this Mm. era. Uh, Can we think of? Other times off the top of our head where Vince was involved in prior things like this, yeah, prior. I, mean, I, I there's ones after, obviously, with the, with the with the flare angle coming the next year. But I yeah, I thought of that. Like as far as that, yeah, and he actually takes a chair shot. He that does. Hit. He does. Yeah, he gets laid great. out. That's the first time I think there's any physicality on Vince McMahon on WWF television. But before this, I'm trying to think of like a serious angle where he would have come down and checked on Hogan or the babyface. Did he do it for the boss man? I know he didn't do it for, say, Ricky Steamboat. Steamboat. No, they had Bruno do it, which was great, but... Yes. Um, yeah, I'm struggling to think of one where there would have been, like, some heavy heat angle like this where he would have walked down and checked on the babyface. He didn't do it for Bundy nope. at the Saturday Night's main event, which is a very comparable angle to this one. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, for those who may have been in the know, um, it was a big deal, I think. Or even if you're not in the know and you just 
Bill Vince is the lead announcer, him being off headset and doing that. It, it kind of added to the gravity of the situation and was very well done. It did. Uh, I Again, I, Hogan's kind of the, this, one of the big stories of the summer is just how absolutely fantastic at being a top guy Hulk Hogan is. And uh, this is kind of a bit of a tour de force here on selling a serious angle. Mm-hmm. And of course, they play, it, they play it up big that his career is going to be over. Yeah, and, and which leads to our next note nicely, that the person rallying the troops uh, to, to, to kind of pick Hulk Hogan back up from his down moment is Tugboat. Uh, Tugboat, who is going to be getting a major push as part of this angle, spearheading the drive to bring back Hogan, selling armbands at the house shows, uh, and giving an address to write to the old Get Well Hulk campaign. Uh, they had hit the Hogan Association with Tugboat prior to this. Uh, they did some kind of some, some squash matches and some promos where they linked the two. They had Hogan peeking through the curtain during a <laughs> quite awful Tugboat squash match. Um, yes. Hogan explaining that he'd known him since he was a little Tugster, which was a, you know, a nickname that Sally didn't catch on. Um, Tugboat's big push came at the suggestion of Dusty Rhodes, his brother-in-law. Yes, Uncle Fred. <laughs> God damn it, Dusty. Yeah, so the squash match, and I watched this, where Hogan peeks his head out of the curtain, or actually, you know what, it may have been a different squash. I can't remember, but bottom line, it was a Tugboat squash I'm watching. He was... Not good in the ring, and that should <laughs> I don't think that's a news flash, but there was this spot where he whips a guy into the corner and the jobber comes out. It's supposed to be like a hip toss spot coming out of the corner, but the jobber basically does all the work, like basically just jumps on Tugboat's arm and like flips himself over. Like it is the single worst hip toss you'll ever see. <laughs> and even I can't remember if it was Superstars or Challenge, but whoever it was, the Vince or Gorilla goes, yeah, a little surprised Tugboat didn't go in there when he had him in the corner. <laughs> it's just like, you're just watching. Like, this guy is is not good. And I think we should mention at this point, because I don't know when else we would, something that Bruce Pritchard mentioned on his podcast that I did not know of before, and I don't think a lot of people did. Sheik Tugboat. Good Lord. The original plan... Per Bruce Pritchard, for the fall and into WrestleMania, was that Tugboat was going to turn heel on Hogan, and he was going to be the American turncoat. Basically, the angle that Sergeant Slaughter got. Just a single way to have made, and we're going to talk a lot about Slaughter in part three. Obviously, that's going to be the dominant talking point. Look, it's offensive no matter who's playing it, but if there's one way to make that angle worse, it's putting Fred Ottman in the role <laughs> Slaughter got, right? I can't. You know what? The first time I heard that story, I, because, you know, hey, Bruce is, it was in the inner circle, and I'm, I'm not, so I'm not going to doubt him. At the same time, I couldn't help but think, is he just seeing how much he can get away with on this fucking podcast? I wondered that, too. But why would you? Ad- but then I thought, why would you admit that <laughs> if it wasn't true? Like, it's one thing to try to use your, you know, and I mean that they do, you know, obviously on that podcast go into worker mode quite a bit. But man, I don't think you would want to admit that. And we'll talk about it, I guess, in a little bit. But maybe the whole tugboat getting taken out. 
prior to SummerSlam was planting the seeds for that. Yeah. That came that that sort of came to me as I was rewatching the television because there was really no other sign of it. I mean, they were, you know, just playing up tugboat. Oh, he just looked up to Hulk and they were just best buddies now. <sighs> Chic tugboat. That would have been among the worst ideas in company history. I mean, I, I guess it was yeah, nonetheless, but like could you imagine? There's would have been no worse Mick guy ever in a WrestleMania main event slot. Oh, good God. No way. Like, yeah. just for that time, not up just up until, but like now I'm talking with 2020 guys. I mean, it just, <laughs> that, that is bad. Chic tugboat too. That just sounds stupid. That's it. Like yeah, you say, like, why would you admit that if it wasn't true? I don't know why you'd want to admit that if it was. Yeah. And I can just hear this. Now the Middle East has a tugboat. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh, man. you don't want to joke about that thing, but like, yeah, I, I don't, you know, what though is the, on the, on the pro side, let's look at the glass half full for a second. Promos in pro wrestling today, at least in WWE are so bad that I was watching at least the first two tugboat rally the troops promos and they seemed better than anything today which is just sad yeah isn't that i thought the same thing when they did when he's sitting in the locker room and stuff like that and he's talking about how come on guys we, he needs to he needs to know how much you care and i'm like i was i was like when it came on the screen i was like oh man this is going to be absolutely awful this is going to be what you would expect and for some reason i mean i almost got the pen out and started writing a letter like right now i was i was, I was compelled <laughs> yeah you know that was a really Dare I say, good promo from Tugboat. And of course, it, you know, WWE got to add to their mailing list. <laughs> they did. They did. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can see when they put Tugboat with him, it's like, okay, this is being done probably primarily to turn him on Hogan at some point. That's how it feels. Well, that's um, what they always did. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a turned on him. Yeah. <laughs> and rightly so. But I think that it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting one with him because obviously it never actually does pay off when it comes to Hogan not not even in this year as well as we'll get to but uh just taking a look now uh you know crowds obviously they, they you know after they do this angle crowds do pick up somewhat as the warrior rude feud gets going at the end of May uh considering all the hype is the big feud of the summer however they weren't exactly the most impressive numbers they'd ever done they did do a get a uh, an attendance of 13,400 at the Meadowlands on June 8th which is the biggest crowd anywhere since WrestleMania uh, so every Warrior Rude match at this point is apparently ending with Warrior pinning Rude clean with a splash. Odd, says Meltzer, considering it's the start of the program, which is going to be lasting until the end of the summer. So again, the, you know, the 13400 paid, it seems, you know, promising. They did a number that was considered that good at that time, but the numbers aren't necessarily anything to, to, to write home about. And even then, if you're going there for the first time, they're blowing it off straight away. Yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute. I just don't really understand that at all. Especially if you're going to SummerSlam. And when we get to our rebook portion of the program, that that's something I'm going to mention. Because if, if you're doing that right away, I just don't know why you're thinking about extending it to SummerSlam if everyone around the country has seen Warrior Beat Root already. I know that you're going to put him in a cage, but that hardly juices the feud up enough. No, not at all. And I wonder, again, it's around this time, shortly after this, 
and this is a problem, if they start making changes to the warrior himself, and I and again, you wonder if it's reactionary because he, he wasn't setting the world on fire with perfect and, and his, his numbers with rude outside of that one we mentioned at the Meadowlands were kind of rank average. They start making changes to the warrior himself, his face paint. They then they, they start having him paint the warrior symbol on his cheek. He's wearing like a, 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 a head, like a headband. It's just uh, they, they start changing the performer like he's the problem. And there is a there is an episode of the Brother Love Show during this period with Amanda Ultimate Warrior that just <laughs> needs to be seen to be believed because you want to talk about character assassination. This feels like this just sinks him. Yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> it, again, I I think it was. Oh God, he's not as good with kids. Let's show everyone he can be good with kids. And then you're like, uh, no, that was not the right call. No, he's talking about love and what love really is. And he introduces a girl called Amanda Ultimate Warriors, the kid from the crowd in face paint, talking about love and the love he shares with the children. And it's, <laughs> but because it's in the Warriors' delivery, it just seems like horrible and creepy. Yeah, it does. It did. You know. Hogan could pull that stuff off. And he was just, I think, a, more of a natural when it came to that stuff. And his character, it worked better. It just didn't work for the warrior holding up kids and kissing babies. No, it wasn't. That's not who his character either. was. No, his, it, was a, it was a wild man. Well, yeah, it was like people got into him because he wasn't that, it felt like. And, and, That's and, and a great just, point, yeah. yeah they, they had Hogan already, and they were cheering Warrior over. Like, over. Yeah, but like we mentioned, when they were, you know, again, may, and maybe it's the fact that he was the challenger, not the champion, and they wanted to see, you know, something exciting, but they were, yeah, they were cheering Warrior over Hogan at the house shows when they announced the match was happening at the start of January and, and early into February. And again, that didn't happen because Warrior was going to be Hulk Hogan. It's because the Warrior was the Warrior. And now we're at this point in June, only three months in, and they're trying to change what they had that was working for the longest time. Yeah, and I, I just don't understand it. It just seemed like a panic move. It's something yeah. that you would, today, you, you would see more, right? You don't think about these kind of panic moves, changing the characters um, back then, but you know, this is something you today, oh God, he's not getting over with kids. Let's have him come out with a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. one dimensional thinking but it's true and just in case the warriors title run isn't cursed enough at this point just when the warrior feud uh, sorry warrior rude feud gets going rude suffers a torn tricep which just fucks things up even more so we're two weeks into the program and rude's down so he's got no choice but to miss the matches on the house shows and his replacement is a handicap match you get it's warrior versus haku and bobby heenan uh which which takes the place of rude and that's and things really start to struggle then yeah, notes, or I have a note here that it looks like the injury may have transpired in my neck of the woods, Toledo, Ohio, on June 10th, because that was the last Warrior Rude match before you started seeing Haku and Heenan sub in for him. Although it looked like Rude tried to give it a go even closer here uh, in suburban Cleveland in Richfield Coliseum, which was the home of the first Survivor Series, the first two Survivor Series. He works that show too, but then there's just a stretch of Haku and Heenan. So it yeah. like, looks like Rude hurt himself here in Ohio. Well, there you go. I mean, he was, and, he, and Rude gets told to take six weeks off. He's only out for two. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the money that he gets, he's not in the guaranteed deal at the time. He's feeling the pressure from Vince because business is down, and, and he comes back way too soon. 
All right. And I started thinking about this more and more when I was trying to come up with different scenarios for Warrior for the summer. In 2020, when you have guaranteed deals, it's very obvious what you do here, right? You just put this program on ice and you go to something else yeah. for SummerSlam because, you know, Rude's hurt. He needs some time off. You know, they're pretty good about that now. You know, guys aren't working with these kind of injuries. It's not like, you know, Paul Orndorff who caused irreparable harm to his <laughs> body because he was in the pro, he was getting the best money of his life in late 86. And, you know, now he's got one arm that's significantly smaller than the other. You just don't hear about that anymore. And they, they don't do that. So, Tip the cap there to one way the wrestling business has gotten better at least. But here, you're right. You mentioned Rude's money isn't guaranteed and business is down. I'm sure Haku and Heenan weren't packing him, although, and this becomes a major issue later, I believe they were still advertising Rude in all those yes. cities. Yes, and they were. You show up to the building and you're, and you're told that, well, it's going to be Haku and Bobby Heenan that night. So... Yeah, Rude Rude feels the pressure to return. And that that's, you know, coming back in 2 weeks when you're supposed to be out 6 just isn't good for your long-term health. That becomes a non-issue because he's not around. He turns out he's not around much longer, but <laughs> you know, this is something when we get to our rebooking of the summer, which I know is coming up here, it really factors in and I'm going to try to use as a way to get out of this feud, whether that's realistic or not, you add that to the fact Warriors already going over clean in every match. So you've got a heel who's been getting beat early around the horn. He's got a torn tricep. You look at this 2020 eyes, it's very obvious <laughs> what the move is. You got to pull this feud and go to something else, go to plan B. But they didn't do that. Uh, while Warrior did need to jumpstart his title run by being successful, i.e. winning matches, those wins should not have been coming at the expense of the challenger at the biggest show of the summer, by the way, to your earlier point, with Warrior going over from the start. That's an issue. Like, yeah. if Warrior Rude was going to be the main event at SummerSlam, then Warrior needed to be beating other people at the houses on TV, not Rude. And then Rude needed to be winning... Uh, at the houses and on TV. And then it's kind of like this clash of the Titans at the end of the summer, just going to that program right away and, you know, having the baby face go over every night and hoping people still care by the end of the summer. It's just a fool's errand from where I sit. Well, that's it. It's like, you, you, and, and even considering like this was, you know, I mean, we talked about this, I think off air last week after we'd finished the podcast, but when you look back at some of this stuff, you know, the charm of this era is that a lot of what works is wrestling 101 it's very simple it's very straightforward and that's why this you know to me the summer seems really bizarre when you look at you know they wouldn't have necessarily done this before it feels like where you know, again you know the guy that and, and rude needed all the help he could get but they're just butchering him before he even gets to and uh, the decision to they're going to ride this out till SummerSlam and he's losing in may clean like you, you, you wouldn't do that and they wouldn't have done that I'm trying to think. So it's basically just Hogan you got to think about, obviously. Yeah. Was there any program in his title run you could think, like a long-term program, 
where he just was going over from the start, and then there was some big blow-off match. Now, I guess it's different, because the early part of his run, you didn't have all the pay-per-views. But I can't think of any. No, because they well, usually did the DQs and the countouts. Yeah, I mean, and even with Savage, okay, which I think is something we need to look back at a lot when we compare this summer, because it's a similar deal with Hogan, you know, uh, out of the picture. Savage didn't beat DiBiase right off the bat. He lost to him usually by countout, or it was a DQ, and they were able to ride that to the summer when he would then win. He won in a cage match yep. in MSG, yep. but DiBiase was going over, uh, not obviously not winning the title, but you know it would be a DQ or countout finish early in that feud. Here, they didn't follow that similar pattern. I don't know why. Um, you know what's funny? And as I was thinking about that, the only time Hogan had a big, clean pinfall win in the first match, you know who it was? Hit me. Andre. <laughs> but that was such a different deal because yeah. Andre, they did the, oh, was that a two or was that three deal at the beginning of the match, which they were able to play up. For a rematch, and in between, they had Andre go over at Survivor Series. Yeah. And Andre had a lot more cachet than Ravishing Rick Rude, obviously. But, yeah, I mean, like, Paul Orndorff, uh, you know, at the big event in Toronto, that was a non-finish. It was it was the blueprint they had dating back to Bruno. They would always yeah. do the same thing. They would, you know, The new heel comes in, they heat him up, they put him with Bruno. It ends usually the first match in a countout. Second match, they would do some kind of blood stoppage or something like that. Where there's, you know, that the heel wins, but the title doesn't change hands by blood stoppage. That's the way they would do it. And then it ends in the cage or some kind of other gimmick match. And that, that was the blueprint they had forever. Andre, again, interesting, but it's kind of the exception to the rule because he wasn't doing a lot of house shows, if any, with Hogan. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they didn't, that's the other thing, too. That was not a house show program. It's not like they went and worked houses right after WrestleMania 3. They didn't. Andre left. Yeah. He didn't work at all between WrestleMania and Survivor Series. So that's why you're able to do the clean pinfall finish. But if you're having these two in the ring, Warrior Root, every night for four or five months, it just doesn't make any sense to have the baby face go over uh, every time. No, not in the slightest. And I'm going to look up Hogan Boss Man to see how they had those feud, to how that feud started at the houses. Um, <laughs> because obviously they went to a cage eventually, and those were the memorable matches. But I don't know if Hogan was pinning Boss Man right off the rip. I'm going to look that up right real quick here. 1988. Yeah. Okay, here we go. L.A. Sports uh, Center, December 17th, 88. Hulk Hogan pinned the big Boss Man. Hulk Hogan defeated the Boss Man via countout in the Boston Garden December 3rd. Philly Spectrum in November. Hogan beat the Boss Man via countout. Mm-hmm. So some of those were kind of, even then it was a little different. Well, he might have pinned him the second time, and then they went to a cage. You know, And plus then Hogan had been heated up, you know, Savage had turned on him, so there was a little bit of a different dynamic. This was just the same dynamic right from the rip, and you're beating the heel. Yeah, and and, and not surprisingly, things don't do well as a result. Yeah. Uh, uh, as Meltzer says here in a little bit of an editorial, the WWF is in its biggest slump since the promotion first went nationwide in 1984. Uh, staleness at the top is the issue, and with the killing of the smaller offices, the needed stream of new talent to spice things up and keep the established names and fresh programs isn't there. Uh, when the WWF realized this summer that the top of the shows weren't pulling the houses, they went looking for new faces, and the best they could come up with 
was Kerry Von Erich and Sergeant Slaughter, which obviously kind of leads to two new additions, one of which has made event implications, the other one doesn't. Uh, there is a note separately. Expect Sergeant Slaughter back in the fall as a heel, although that one is far from definite. The reason that was said uh, was because WWF wanted him as a heel. He wanted to be a babyface, uh, and they pretty much told him that the job was as a heel. Uh, however, the Kerry Von Erich, he was to be brought in directly as a babyface. So, uh, yep. But as Meltzer says, the problem's a heel problem, not a face problem. So, so there you go. Yeah, and Kerry, I guess that you know, obviously they had wanted him for a while, and with Dallas dying, you know, and it was just time for him to go. And I think that agreement was a lot simpler, and there was not a lot of back and forth there. I would agree with Meltzer's comment about this being the biggest slump since the promotion went nationwide in '84. I thought back. And was like, all right, was there ever kind of just like this dull um, stretch of television for WWF during that period? I was thinking like summer of 87 is kind of boring when you're waiting for Andre to come back. There's really nothing at the top. I watched all the prime times from that summer. There's not a lot going on with Hogan. I mean, his house show programs hardly race, but that's not a TV program at all. But still, you have stuff like Honky winning the IC title. The program feels hot. They're, you know, they did a, they were doing much better than they were here at the houses. Um, Post WrestleMania two, that would have been eighty six the year before. That was a little boring. But as we mentioned, I think in part one, there always was kind of that lag after WrestleMania initially. Yeah. It's not that? like it is now. So uh, Meltzer is correct. This is the first thing you could call a slump for the company since um you know hogan took over at the beginning of 84 yeah for sure and and, and it's one of those things too where even if there was some uh, periods of dull television it didn't necessarily show up in the houses 86 is an interesting one because i like 86 a lot when you have it's actually one of the best years of the company where you have stuff that kind of bleeds through all year long with adonis and piper um and obviously th- that you know, as we rally towards wrestlemania 3 there things obviously get real strong yes. Th- here it doesn't feel like we're rallying towards anything other than Hogan coming back. Yeah, and with 86, it's once that Hogan-Orndorf program kicks in in the middle of the summer, then you're off to the races. You know, I I think you could make a case that from the time Orndorf turns on Hogan to WrestleMania 3 is, like, among the very best times in company history. Yeah. But there was just that little stretch, I think, I guess, between WrestleMania and the Orndorff turn where things were a little slow. But again, that's the way it was. All right, with Kerry and Slaughter. Yes. To me, these are the last two remaining stars from the non, what we'll say, NWA slash WCW territory. Right? Yeah. There was no one else to cherry pick from. And going back to our discussion about the dearth of heels in late 89, Meltzer kind of, I think, mentioned this in one of the quotes you read earlier. Lack of territorial talent to pull from or steal. Now kind of a problem for the WWE? Big time. Big time problem. When you look at it, like all the heels that they pulled to work from elsewhere to work with Hogan, very few of them were, were, were guys that came in and, and had their first chance, uh, their first crack at the whip as a main event guy. There, you know, you had Piper in Mid-Atlantic, Savage in Memphis, Orndorff in Georgia, DBRC in Mid-South. The guys that they would put in that position had experience working at that level. So the moves begin to be made to prepare for Hogan's return. Uh, there is a long promo that airs on the syndicated television. It's about a six or seven minute promo from Hogan 
that is real strong. There's actually some great stuff in general here. There's a video package as well, uh, kind of teasing the retirement of Hulk Hogan. Actually, this is before, obviously, the long promo, where it's it's like shows you know, a bunch of Hogan's great moments and then a locker door closing uh, with you know, the locker obviously has all of his gear and the crucifix and stuff like that. The long return promo that airs, Kyle, you mentioned that on Top Rope Nation last week. Real strong stuff. If it's not his best promo ever, it's his second best promo ever. I talked about this on Top Rope Nation. The only other one I could think of was when he narrates the Paul Orndorff turn sitting in the gym with Vince. This was just some of Hogan's best character. And I think the key was he showed a vulnerability you don't normally get out of his character. Yeah. You know, he, he kind of was like, yeah, for the first time, I just didn't know if I had it. And there was an emotion. He clearly showed that he was um, positively affected by the outpouring of support from the fans, all the cards, stuff. As cheesy as that was, it totally worked in the promo. You mentioned the time that it was like a six-minute promo. Very rare for syndicated television to have a promo air that long. I mean, now that's just, you know, what you do, how you open up a (laughs) WWE television show. Back then, you did not get six-minute promos on WWF television. You just didn't. And... It was outstanding. And again, you just, when you compare the way this program is going to Warrior Rude, man, um, Hogan is clearly the star of this company. Yeah, it's, it's and that becomes more apparent as things go on here. But it's that again, similar to that weird you know, the, the the feeling of why do I find myself loving this tugboat promo for some reason? It's that thing of like, when Hogan's promo starts and he's so soft-spoken, and even when he starts talking about how he gets on the Hollywood tugboat, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, okay, this where's this going? And then it just it builds and it builds and it gets so good to the point where when he announces he's back and he's gonna get the earthquake, it's like this is a pro's pro doing just exceptional work. Also, what is it with hell no being the key phrase in Hulk Hogan promos? If you remember <laughs> He yelled hell no when he refused to sell the title to Ted DiBiase as well. That's and then right. Here he says, hell no, I'm not retiring. And then he goes into, I'm going to take you on at SummerSlam. And that was like an awesome moment. In both promos it kind of was. But I thought it was just interesting that he used hell no both times. And, and, and from a promo perspective, we'll come to the Saturday Night's main event now in July because Hogan's appearance on there is just the stuff of a true star again. He comes out. Bit of a you know, questionable tie with the black uh, Lycra spandex on the bottom half and the red and yellow on top. But, you know, that <laughs> that aside, I mean, when he comes... And, and Vince does the, the, the classic intro. <laughs> it's an absolutely classic intro. Hogan comes out for the live crowd. They're just going crazy. He's got him in the palm of his hand. He's doing such a great promo. And it's like, this guy is everything the Warrior isn't at this point. Yeah, and you've got a note here that which I found interesting. It was being considered internally that Earthquake wasn't over enough to be a heel at Hogan's level, kind of the issue yes. we talked about with Rude and Warrior. But since they'd come, and the note, I presuming this is from Meltzer, since they'd come this far and they didn't really have anyone else, they're just WWE was just banking on Hogan's return being hot enough to carry this program regardless of the heel, which got me to thinking, how familiar are you over there in the jolly old England with baseball terminology uh some people will be a lot of people won't be okay well are you familiar with the concept of war wins above replacement replacement yes the idea of basically what is your contribution above what would be there anyway okay yeah and that's just not baseball i think they they, they've got it in basketball and really some form in every sport 
So I have a question for you. What is Earthquake's war in this feud in terms of what is his value above a replacement level heel? Do you think, and we're going to talk about this with the SummerSlam buy rate, is this just all about Hogan selling an injury and coming back off a two-month sabbatical? Or was the fact that Earthquake was the heel, was that kind of a value add in any way? I think, or is he I just think, lucky enough to be working with Hogan? A little bit of that, but I think my gut is, as we and again, we'll talk about this on the rebooking, Earthquake was the only guy on the roster that hadn't really been tainted that much. Like, it's funny now where you've got, you know, you look with 2020 eyes and you've had a roster full of guys who've been there for like eight to 12 years. But like, at this point, there's that, there's that thing where guys... They, they, they're being pushed, they're on the way up, and then when, when it's time, they're on the way down, and they kind of get cycled. And they have their run, and then they're kind of, they're, they're, they either they linger to their natural position, they fall to wherever they're going to fall. They didn't have really anybody else who hadn't been tainted at that point. Anybody who hadn't been beaten or, or lost decisively in some manner to another babyface. The only value, really, that Earthquake, I mean, it's a promo, he's nothing special, he's kind of, you know, kind of garden variety stuff. Um, again, you know, the angle you mentioned was mostly Hogan, you know, the selling of Hogan. You know, they did a decent job just protecting it. But even then, it's like, you know, there's an angle in like June or July when Duggan runs him off with a two by four. And it's like at that point, that's where I kind of get the feeling of like, why are you having Duggan run him off? Like, I know that was like what they were doing on the house shows, but like, why would yeah. you do that now? Like, again, like similar to Rude beating him, why would you devalue Earthquake at all? Up to up to okay, you know they've got Warrior on the uh, on the TV shows squashing jobbers and then ripping off the bracelets they're all wearing for Hogan and stuff like that in the run up, and that's good. But when by the time we get into July and and they're doing the angle on Saturday night's main event when you know Bravo and Warrior confront him and Tugboat runs in, to be honest, they're just kind of there. Okay, so it's not a huge value add in your opinion or that it's Earthquake. I think it. I think it helps. It helps that he was in the right place at the right time. Okay, and I think that's fair. And that's my big quote or comment on Earthquake too at this time. That no matter what you want to do for the summer of 1990, Earthquake has got to be factored into one of the top two heel spots because, as you said, he's the only one who hasn't been beaten. Yes, coming into the summer, so. He's got to factor in. I thought he was a little bit of a value add. Like I said, I think this angle compares favorably to, say, Hogan Bundy at WrestleMania 2. Yeah, I'd agree with and, that. I'd agree with that. And maybe, again, that has to do with the fact that Hogan took all the time off. Whereas WrestleMania was like, oh, is he coming back too soon from this injury? Mm. Because they didn't have a lot of time in between when they ran the Bundy angle and WrestleMania. It was like a month. Where here, he Hogan takes two months off of television. So, you know, that might have added to it. But, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting question um, to analyze how much value Earthquake added to this feud. Yeah. Uh, and on that same, you know, Sunlight's main event show, they gave 11,000 Warrior masks to the crowd to try and create the illusion that uh, Warrior was hotter than Hogan ever was, in Meltzer's words. Uh, about half the fans didn't even put the masks on, even though they were asked by <laughs> Howard Finkel to do so. That doesn't look good. And in and in one of the most stunning things, which I, for some reason I didn't remember, Warrior wrestles Rude on this show, and Warrior just like kicks out of the Rude Awakening, beats the shit out of him, has the match won when Heenan gets involved, 
wins by count out anyway, and then stands tall at the end. And I was just flabbergasted. Like, where, where is the heat in this feud? Like, why, why on earth would anybody think that Rude has any chance of winning against the Warrior? No idea why they would put the SummerSlam main event or co-main event on free TV when they're, you know, wrestling a month later on pay-per-view. And even worse is, like, you've announced the cage match, and you're just running a regular match. And it made for some confusing promos. Like, I remember Rude was on Brother Love, and, you know, Brother Love's like, oh, I can't wait till Rick Rude wins that cage match and becomes the next WWF champion. And Rude's like, well, let me correct you, Brother Love. I might already be the champion going into SummerSlam. And it was some kind of, again, rare mixed messaging you didn't get in that era. Yes. Yes, that's me too. If... You're doing war. You've already got Warrior Root announced as a cage match going into that Saturday night's main event. There is no reason to put it on free TV. There just isn't. No, none. And by the way, that Saturday night's main event only did a 7.2 rating, second lowest according to the information I had for any Saturday night's main event in history. The only one lower was the third one back in 85. And to show how far they'd fallen throughout the year, WWF. The January Saturday Night's Main Event, which we talked about in part one, the one where Warrior accidentally clotheslines Hogan after the tag match with Perfect and Genius, that did like an 11.2 rating, which was the second highest Saturday Night's Main Event rating uh, for all the information I had. So that's quite a fall in six months. Yeah, steep declines going on, and they're going on across the board. The house show uh, decline that we've been talking about pretty much the whole way through this uh, this series here exemplified the week before SummerSlam when the WWF goes to San Francisco, considered a very strong market for the company traditionally. Hogan against a tree with some charisma would draw 9,000 in San Francisco, says Meltzer. Dusty Rhodes and Randy Savage drew 8,400 when they went out there. Warrior did 12,000 the last two times he was out there. And those matches with Rude haven't drawn big anywhere, he says. Hogan week before SummerSlam, works with Dino Bravo and draws 6,050 people. So, okay, the shine, <laughs> some of the shine must be lost with Hogan then, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's not a good number at all. And with the exception of that Meadowlands show you mentioned with Warren Root, I was stunned at the house show numbers throughout the summer. They were. I went back and looked. I was like, all right, maybe you, you would see these in other years. And, yeah, there would be some disappointing houses every year. But there were also, like, big spikes. And there were just no big spikes throughout the summer, ironically, until... (laughs) (laughs) Well, the one spike we get for summer is when we finally go to the Philadelphia Spectrum for Summer Slam itself. After a very poor summer with feuds running on fumes, it does a 3.9% buy rate, considered a massive success internally since the show wasn't even supposed to be the big deal that WrestleMania was, but it pulls in 507,000 buys. Uh, The show itself was sold out for five weeks when no other major arena in the country had sold out for wrestling. Uh, We can talk about, obviously, the show itself, but just that statistic. It's a complete anomaly, and it should be stressed. It is a complete anomaly in the summer. We'll talk about that afterwards. But I watched this show, and again, I mentioned last uh, on, on the first, on part one, the videotape that I first purchased when I was a, a young wrestling fan and watched repeatedly. And Hulk Hogan completely upstages the Ultimate Warrior and just gives him a lesson in how to be a top guy on this show. It is stunning. A stunning performance from Hulk Hogan. 
Yeah, the pop he gets is unreal. Much bigger than Warrior. It's obvious. Warrior does go on last. At least. <laughs> after Hogan doesn't beat the Earthquake. That's an interesting thing we can talk about here in a little bit. That he does not pin Earthquake in that match. Because they're continuing it on the houses. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it did feel like that was the high point of the show in terms of the live audience's interest. And Warrior Rude was kind of like... Uh, now we gotta get this out the way and and you didn't really ever have that before on a wwf pay-per-view where the main event wasn't what the crowd had come to see well i guess the only other one would have been wrestlemania 4 right yeah yeah when hogan and andre went on because yeah hogan and andre that was put on very much that was billed kind of as the main event the main attraction of the tournament and then I think it's safe to say that drew a much uh, stronger reaction, at least at the outset, than even the fo- tourney final did. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's just so interesting when you watch this show because it's like Hogan comes out and everybody's going crazy for him. Just, for, just They're going so crazy for him. And then he, you know, he does this match, you know, wins by countout, slams Earthquake on a, like a table that's been suspiciously placed at ringside, didn't break. Uh Hogan celebrates the count-out win at SummerSlam as Lex Luger takes notes on how to be Hulk Hogan for dummies. <laughs> and af- afterwards, when he's you know, the pose-down routine, he has just got the crowd in the palm of his hand. And you know what doesn't help, by the way, when you watch this back? Roddy Piper on commentary did not seem to like Jim Helwig. In the, no, in that, he didn't. In that cage match, man, he is just skewering the warrior. And it is an odd performance from Roddy Piper on that show. I think... He didn't know whether it be a baby face or a heel commentator yet. Yeah. And I don't ever really figured it out. And Lord knows he had his fair share of odd moments uh, in that commentary run in 1990. That's Tony Atlas. Uh, <laughs> highlight among them. But so it seemed like he just kind of relied on who he liked and didn't. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, you know, because with Hogan, I mean, if I remember correctly, he's kind of like talking about their history a little bit, but he's clearly giving him respect. Yeah. Okay. And then like, but there's other baby faces like the rockers in the opener. He like totally shits on. (laughs) And it's like making Mick Jagger and David Bowie jokes about them. Yeah. Which I didn't get at the time, which uh, that's again, that's a little clever little thing, I suppose. But yeah, there's like, there's this one moment in the cage match where like Rude's up against the cage and, and Warrior's like doing his little war dance to get ready to charge at him. And Piper goes, so what does it mean when he puts his arms in the air and starts prancing like a pony? And then Warrior dives and misses and hits the cage. And Piper just goes, oh, it means he's going to miss. I see. <laughs> just like, you couldn't make him look like a bigger dick if you tried. Yeah. yeah. You think Vince was trying to like step on Roddy's foot at that point? <laughs> By the way, why was that Tony Atlas thing not redone? <laughs> yeah, why did they leave that in? Vince, I think Vince, like, oh, well, he's just going back to his roots. Yeah, yeah, I just, no, 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 that's Saba Simba, that's not, no, that's Tony Atlas. <laughs> yeah, Piper was We can talk about that more in part three, because that's when Saba Simba debuts, but um, did you have anything else? Because I, I wanted to ask, what do we give the credit to for this strong SummerSlam number? I think it's Hogan, I really do. And, well, is it all to Hogan, just based on his strong work? Upon the re- return to TV, 
I think the, the the promotional push for the angle, I think the the video package, the promo he did, the Saturnites made event appearance, I feel like it's all Hogan. When you read the observers, one of the notes Meltzer says is it feels like nothing in North American wrestling at all, period, going you including the NWA, which was under the reign of Ole Anderson at this time, nothing in wrestling was hot apart from the return of Hulk Hogan. And keep in mind, speaking of the NWA, over the summer, what happened? Sting beats Ric Flair. Yes. That's not a good sign that Dave's saying that. How much did Hogan taking two months off help SummerSlam? We know it definitely hurt the houses. Yeah. Because you didn't have a strong B-show program. We'll get to that in a little bit. But him taking that time off, and then this is your first chance to see him wrestle. He's going for revenge. Is that not really, like, if you're trying to really zero in on why this show succeeded, is it not that? I think so. Okay. That's what I think, too. Yes. Yep, absolutely. I, I think when you add all the elements in the equation, I think that the, there's a, there is nothing going on. If, can you imagine if Hogan wasn't on this show? Oh, my God. It doesn't do close to this number. No, it would have easily done the worst number they'd ever done on pay-per-view. Yeah. I think that's I think when you look at it like that, I think that tells the tale. Mm-hmm. So And to be fair, if you took Hogan off any WWF pay-per-view around this time, it probably wouldn't do very well. well I mean, as, they, as they would find out two years later. Yes, yes. So, you know, I, I think Hulk, while he has his issues, you have to give the devil his due in this period. Um, you know, the reason more often than not for these strong pay-per-view numbers was Hulk Hogan. Not anybody else. Because it's not like WrestleMania today where you don't really know what the feature match is. You know, there's kind of like four co-features. They don't promote mm-hmm. any one thing as a main event. Ironically here, you did have the first double main event in uh, WWF pay-per-view history. But it's clearly the one guy responsible for the number. And ironically, not the champion. Yeah. By the way, now that I say those words... Did making this a double main event, yes, we know Hogan drew the number. But is that number, if Hogan Earthquake wasn't promoted as half of a double main event, would that have hurt the show, do you think? Hmm, this is one of those that I can see Vince's mentality all over it. You know, the whole idea of you have to, when something is a big attraction, you have to promote it in some way as the main attraction. Okay, the flip side of that is, Promoting this as a double main event did that hurt the Ultimate Warrior? Absolutely, absolutely, it did. And because he was caught, that match was that match needed all the help it could get. And the fact that it looked like, yeah, you know, when he was the champion in his first defense on pay per view, he needs Hogan to share to, to, to help sell the show. Just the perception of it. Yeah, because there were no double main events. Nope. In the Hogan title era, nope. that, that was. I mean, Hulk Hogan was the clear main event on all of his shows. We're about to go into our rebook yes. of the summer. Some ideas that we had that could, you know, I think particularly with the Warrior, maybe have, you know, made his plight a little stronger. But people are listening to the show. They hear that SummerSlam does well. And maybe they're thinking to themselves, hey, you two idiots, why even bother doing this rebook if SummerSlam did so well? So I think you had a paragraph that kind of gives us some insight into the fall. I think it's important for you to read it because just because they did well at SummerSlam, not all is well here with the WWF. 
No, this was very much an anomaly. SummerSlam was the exception, not the rule. The strong number for the pay-per-view aside, the woes are continuing at the house shows. The Hogan program with Earthquake does carry over. Warrior gets moved on to be the third guy in LOD, who have only just come in. Their feud with Demolition, and there's no heat lean to his involvement at all. Uh, MSG on uh, September 21st, the first show in the building since May, uh, due to some renovations that you'd mentioned, Kyle, uh, in our notes as well, under 12,000 paid. And a lot of people in New York are actually talking about that as a notably poor crowd considering they've been away for so long. Uh, but even saying that, it was still the fourth largest WWF gate since WrestleMania. So by the standards of the day, 12,000 for any show is considered a big deal. It's worth stressing that, yes, SummerSlam in isolation, a show that worked for Hogan's return. But as we saw on the house show before with Bravo, and as we see in the house shows afterwards, things aren't picking up. There's problems. Well, you can only do a big return once. Exactly. Once you've returned for everybody, okay, well, what's next? And I think that's kind of one of the key things that I'm looking at, and I'm assuming you are too, when you look at solutions uh, to potentially improve the WWF over the course of the summer of 1990. So how do we want to do this? You've got a lovely face and heel depth chart uh, in our notes. Do we want to run through that first? Yeah, I think so. For the benefit of the listeners uh, who may not have been uh, tuning in at this period of time or may not have gone back, this is what the lay of the land was. So kind of look at the depth chart on the face side first. You got Hulk Hogan. This is right after WrestleMania 6. After WrestleMania 6, you got Hogan, who obviously has taken his sabbatical at some point. You got the Warrior on top as the champion. You got Dusty Rhodes. Roddy Piper, Jim Duggan, Big Boss Man, again, freshly turned, Tugboat, who they were about to put a lot of focus on, but really hadn't yet up to this point, Brutus Beefcake, who had, you know, he'd headlined SummerSlam the year before, beat Mr. Perfect, and Jake Roberts, who was now out of the Ted DiBiase feud, moving on to other things. So that's the lay of the land on the babyface side. On the heel side, at the top of the mix, you've got Earthquake, who, as we mentioned before, he's, he's fairly new. He's the only untainted heel at that point. You've got Rick Rude, who'd been beaten by Piper, Sorry, beaten by the Warrior, feud with Piper. Uh, Randy Savage been beaten by Hogan for a year and lost to Dusty at WrestleMania. Ted DiBiase, who kind of lost around the horn to Jake. Uh, Perfect, who had been beaten by Hogan and Beefcake. Bad News Brown, Dino Bravo, Rick Martel, and at a stretch, the Barbarian, who had gotten a win at WrestleMania 6. Uh, but that's what you got on the heel side. And I think after you get to, like, you know, number five on the heel side, Mr. Perfect. After that, bad news, bravo, Martel Barbarian. Nobody there that screams anyone that's ready for a main event level push. So that's kind of the lay of the land in terms of the, the key players you've got involved. And we should make, mention, going back to that face depth chart, Roddy Piper, you had noted in part one that he was not exactly high on the company's Christmas card list for some reason. And he did not, uh, th- that's kind of why he didn't get the win over bad news at WrestleMania six. At least that was Meltzer's speculation. It seemed. Yes. Yes, indeed. That, that they weren't going to put Piper over because he wasn't exactly popular in the locker room at that time. Although I had read stuff that Piper and bad news really, neither guy was willing to job going to that feud. So you got to wonder why you would even book it in the first place. <laughs> Options. Now you've got several outstanding questions here that you posed in the notes you sent over to me several weeks ago and by god liam i have answers the, the key faces that are getting a bit of a shove at the time they outnumber the heels anyway so i guess the first question is do you turn jake after mania i think there are options when you can turn jake and whom you can turn him against that should be viewed as a positive i'll throw this back to you 
are there any unintended consequences of turning Jake this soon, i.e. the remainder of his babyface run? Would you miss anything of that from that? Like, did you think there's anything he did between post WrestleMania six and basically post WrestleMania seven that you're like, oh well, all right, I turn him heel to help the summer ninety, but well, then I guess we're not getting that. I, I mean, <laughs> you got the bad news feud, which I wouldn't miss. Nope, uh, not one bit. The angle with Martel at the end of the year is good, but isn't a yes. difference. Isn't a difference maker though. And if True. I'm if I'm looking to save the summer because we need a difference maker, I, I know what I'm prioritizing. If yes. I think Jake's, if I think Jake's got legs at the yeah. top, yeah, I, I want to mention this. People, when they think of that Jake Martel feud, typically will think of the silly blindfold match they had at WrestleMania. Yeah, but it took a special kind of babyface, I think, to even make that angle work. You know, there are some babyfaces that that thing could go really off the rails. A lesser babyface than Jake Roberts. Yeah. But I'm kind of like you as well, where it's like, all right, well, an upper mid card feud particularly that one, isn't enough to justify potentially not turning Jake Roberts yes. and missing out on it. And then the only other feud was Earthquake post-wrestling, which was aborted anyway when Jake eventually does turn heel. Yeah, exactly. And, and if the idea is that Jake's going to go heel, I would be tempted to have him take out Hogan, he, for him to be the guy to take out Hogan Ooh. for the summer. At, at, at least give it strong consideration. I know that it was a different time, but if you're going to take him out, the snake bite seems logical. Uh, and then, obviously, from there, the Warrior falls in with Earthquake. Okay. Earthquake push goes to Warrior. Let's say that. Okay. Who besides Jake, then, could you put with Hogan? Oh, that's where it gets tough. Once you make the decision that... Because it has to be... The guy that takes out Hogan is the guy who works at SummerSlam. Yes, so you, you that, kind of absolutely. That, that is cut and dry. That yeah. you have someone take out Hogan, and then you do a big grudge match at SummerSlam. Yes. And to me, the only two options you've got, because as much as I love Savage, and, and we may as well get to this kind of side note right now, there was the idea of, you know, is Savage and Warrior something you could do immediately after Mania 6? And I think you made the point, and I agree, Savage kind of needed some time away from the top of the mix. Yeah, it's a hard no for me, putting Randy Savage in the world title mix right after WrestleMania 6. He'd just eaten high-profile losses to Hogan on NBC, Dusty Rhodes at WrestleMania 6. I know it was a mixed tag, but still he didn't, as a character, come off looking strong from that program. And I would argue, I think I said it in part one, the Randy Savage character was kind of at a low point coming off WrestleMania 6. So he's not in the mix at all for a world title opportunity and you can't put him with Hogan because they had just feuded all of 89. Absolutely. And, and I think similarly, DiBiase from 88, the, you know, his, he hadn't done much with Warrior, but I, I don't think that he was in a position either of strength. So I think that you've pretty much, you're limited, I think, to Earthquake or Jake. For taking out Hogan. For taking out Hogan, what, yeah. What about Rick Rude? So I thought of this and I was trying to figure out how you could do it. Have you got an idea on Rude and Hogan? Just because based on what we've seen, you could do kind of similar vignettes where he, he being rude, is claiming that Hogan's over the hill now and washed up. Mm, yeah. But the issue is, are Vince and specifically Hogan going to want that kind of verbiage on television? 
Yeah, because there was, and I believe they taped a promo before SummerSlam where Rude mentioned that Rudamania was now running wild in the yes, WWE. Yes, that's true. I had heard that. Okay. I'm not making that up. No, that, that that is in the notes. And one thing that I thought was interesting was they were doing that before they got to SummerSlam. So I was almost curious of, are they, because th- they don't go with that. Obviously, they go with Rude and the Boss Man, which we'll, we'll come to in, in, in part three. But since they didn't actually do that, you almost wonder if that was something they wanted to go down and then there was a decision not to do that. And there's always that rumor out there that Hogan never wanted to work with Rude for whatever yeah. reason. They only worked one match ever, I think, one-on-one. It was in the Boston Garden, early 88, and it's kind of a fun match. Have you ever seen this? They do this arm wrestling bit in the middle of it. I think it's January 88 in Boston Garden. So Hogan's still the champion. They haven't done the Hefner deal on the main event with Andre. Mid-match, Rude gets on the ground and challenges Hogan to an arm wrestling thing, and Hogan just, like, (laughs) Beats it, and Hogan obviously wins the arm wrestling thing and starts like slamming Rude's arm down like three times. It's it's pretty fun, actually. And it makes you think, man, if these guys ever did a kind of a long-term program, you know, would it have some legs? Would it be interesting? Would it be captivating? I don't know, because it never happened. I very much wonder if that was a conscious thing where Hogan again Rude had been you know, he'd been beaten by the warrior. And so maybe there is that thing with Hogan where he, you know, again, anybody for him in Hogan's run that was heading to Hogan was being built for Hogan. They weren't losing to anybody else on the way. That's a good point. And I think that maybe that may have played in his mind in terms of not wanting to work with Rude and going 50-50. Because for it to work, he has to sell for Rude. But at the same time, Rude is on a different level. Unfortunately, a lower level than the guys he's worked with. Jake has the snake. Earthquake's a a big heel. So they have like ways to take easy ways to take Hogan out that would cause an extended absence, right? What earthquake did Jake, you can do the snake bite thing. What does rude do that would necessitate a two month Hogan absence? Like you would have to almost do some real heavy heat type deal that I can't think of right now. Like a it's one like of those a pile guys. driver off the you know like a like on a chair, followed by the rude awakening. It'd have to be something like that. Like something that you would see in the NWA more likely. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, and I'm, that, I'm, that I'm, you didn't get in WWF. And let's talk about what they actually do with Rude, okay? Because I know this is in your notes as well. You say, are the Rude vignettes good for just one Saturday night main event challenge at best? Yeah, that to me feels the way to go. If, if they're going to do those vignettes straight after Mania 6, you're doing it to build to that April 28th Saturday night's main event so that Warrior can Ooh, beat oh, him. Soon. Yeah, Warrior beats him and proves that he's passed it. Okay, so oof. what do you do with Rick Rude if you... He, there's, all right, here's where the two questions would come in. What do you do with Rude if you just beat him in April on that first Saturday Night's Main event? What does he do after that? Or what do you do with him if he never feuds with Warrior or Hogan? I, I think, think that's a challenge. I think they made a mistake, and this is getting onto elsewhere in the card. I think they made a mistake going with Dusty and Savage for so long. 
And I think that if you consider WrestleMania 6 the blow-off of that, which it should have been, and it looked like, I think that Rude and Dusty is not the worst direction to go. I came up with that, too. Yeah. And there's some natural stuff you could do oh, there. Oh, yeah. With Rude and Sapphire, Dusty's physical presentation. <laughs> that I think would make that a natural kind of feud. Yes, very much so. So I think that you're right. That is the answer. If you don't put Rude with one of the top two baby faces, you're probably putting him with Dusty. I, th- I think that we both kind of agree that Tugboat's kind of going to get... Uh... <laughs> He's going to get shoveled off to the side and not be the, the big priority that he ends up being. So, so, I mean, so I guess... And this is funny because this is something that I threw out to, uh, to the listeners of the show on the Facebook page. You know, is there anything that jumps out at anybody in, in replacement of the Rude thing? And a lot of people have the same opinion. Earthquake's the answer. So I guess the, the decision, and I, I get to throw it to you on, on, on things that you had... Is it as simple as you turn Jake and then he goes to Hogan, he puts Hogan out, and it's Quake and Warrior? Because they had history anyway. Thinking back to his introduction. Yes. Yes. He was John from West Virginia in the push up <laughs> contest. Okay. I've got three different scenarios here for the summer. Hopefully, you like one of them. Maybe you don't like any of them, but we're going to yeah. try. Okay. Both scenarios one and two. The Hogan Earthquake program stays basically unchanged. Okay. While Warrior feuds with Rude up to the July Saturday night's main event. Okay. The question becomes, and we talked about this earlier, how do you handle that Rude injury with the triceps? Since the feud wasn't drawing anyway, you should probably go in a different direction for the Warrior at SummerSlam. Yes. But do you blow the rude feud off on that Saturday night's main event or just drop it for the time being and transition to something else? Probably you're going to have to promise rude some main events after he returns if you tell him to take time off. Again, in 2020, we're having a much different discussion than we are in 1990. You can't probably say, hey, Rick, uh, come, we'll give you a couple weeks off, come back to Saturday night's main event, lose, get healthy, and then we'll see which way the wind blows. He's yeah. probably not going to like that scenario at all. No, but it's, <laughs> My it's <guess>. also, <laughs> yeah, your guess, and it's probably an accurate guess, but it's probably the decision that had to be made for him. Yes. And because here's the thing, not only missing the house show payoffs, he's going to miss a large one at SummerSlam too. Yeah. The big because one. if you, if you obviously take rude out of the warrior slot at SummerSlam, rude's not working SummerSlam. No, he can't. And he's probably going to be not happy. And, spoiler alert, we know payoff issues ultimately lead to Rick Rude's departure from the company in the fall. So, here's scenario one, okay? All right, let's hear it. You have Warriors start a program with either Jake or Randy Savage, potentially on that same Saturday Night's Main event. You basically um, have them kind of just take Rude's spot with Jake. It would be a heel turn. Savage, you would have to have him beat Dusty on television, I think, to get his cachet back up. Okay. Biggest pro of that scenario, in my opinion, Warriors got a potentially hotter program, fresher uh, for SummerSlam than what Rude was going in, which was completely cold and dead at that point, right? Yeah. Okay. The con is you're going to have to probably do a non-finish in a pay-per-view world title match. 
to keep your new feud going. That's one scenario where you basically take an injured root out of the equation, you sub Jake or Savage in, and that's who challenges Warrior at SummerSlam. Okay. Scenario two, after beating Rick Root, here he definitely, Warrior definitely beats Root at Saturday Night's Main Event. He is the one who makes the save for Hulk Hogan when Earthquake and Bravo have the ring surrounded on that same Saturday Night's Main Event. Okay, I see where this is going. And Hogan then asks Warrior to be his tag partner for SummerSlam against Earthquake and Dino Bravo. Yeah, because SummerSlam has traditionally had tag team main events. Yes, 90 is the only SummerSlam of the first four not main evented by a tag team match. Now, what do you do with Tugboat, you're asking, if you even care? (laughs) You take him out earlier. So Hogan announces return on the 14th of July, I think it was. Saturday Night's Main Event was the 28th. You take Tugboat out the week in between. You take him out the day of Saturday Night's Main Event, just like you did uh, to make room, spoiler alert, for the big boss man to be in Hulk Hogan's corner at the show. We haven't gotten to that yet. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So to me, the biggest pro of doing a tag match with Warrior and Hogan against Earthquake and Bravo is you are elevating Warrior, I think, in the eyes of the fans because Hogan, quote-unquote, needs him to help him out with this situation he's got. Okay, okay. The con is, I kind of feel this is the least interesting of the booking possibilities. It is, but one, and you probably planned for this, maybe you didn't, I think that one of the benefits of this is that you could, if it feels like Rude is burning out quicker, once you do the angle with Hogan and Earthquake, you can go to Warrior and Earthquake on the house shows in Hogan's absence and do the non-finishes. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you've got Because Bravo's going to eat the pin in the tag match, obviously. Oh, oh unquestionably. Okay, so, yeah, and that's the thing. It gives you the option. I actually didn't think of that, to be honest. I was... I, I thought it basically keeps you open what you do for the fall. You could completely end it um, with Earthquake at the top of the card. Um, you could, you know, just do what you did with Hogan and Earthquake and Warrior gets a different heel. Or, like you said, you could do Warrior and Earthquake in the fall, which probably works yeah. better than what they did. My third and final scenario is kind of what you alluded to earlier, and that's Jake Roberts turning heel right after WrestleMania. You look at where he was. He had done a non-finish with Teddy Biasi at WrestleMania 6. The feud he has with Bad News Brown subsequently is awful. <laughs> and it just seemed like the time was kind of right for Jake to be a turn. He had been a babyface for three years. And if he does so on Hogan, we mentioned this, Warriors obviously getting Earthquake. Here's the con, though, of that scenario. How do you book an Ultimate Warrior Earthquake feud? You cannot take out your top two babyfaces for the summer. And if Hogan's leaving because of Jake, you can't replicate Hogan Quake with Warrior. No, I think that you have to... I see the problem because... And the other thing with the Warrior is because he is such a wild man character, it's not like you've ever linked him to anybody where there's any kind of vulnerability where Earthquake can destroy somebody that gets to Warrior and Warrior is coming for revenge or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, you would just have to kind of... Yeah, I don't know. Without that... Because we talked about Earthquake's, you know, value above replacement and the Hogan feud, right? Mm -hmm. 
he got Hulk Hogan to appear vulnerable for the, something we had not seen from the Hogan character or very rarely seen from the Hulk Hogan character throughout his run. If he's not in a position where he's making his baby face look that vulnerable, how well does he work? I think it's a valuable question. I think that it's it's the kind of thing where the, the only solution is, and, and who knows if this would have worked, but you go all in on Earthquake as a true killer heel destroying other people in the promotion. Where okay. you're, you're doing the thing where he's putting the warrior masks on the jobbers and squashing them. As he challenges Warrior at, Saturday, at that April Saturday Night's main event, you know, challenge me, challenge me, I'll destroy everybody until you answer my my challenge kind of a thing. He kills the jobbers and puts the Warrior masks on them. He, you know, rather than having himself a Jim Duggan, because Duggan was never going to be used after this in any kind of a prominent role, have Duggan break the two by four over his head and he no-sells it. You know, make him make him a killer. Make him as, Which as would be cool. as you can. Which would be cool because if you remember... When Duggan feuded with Andre, Andre, he knocked him out. He knocked him out with the two by four. And, you know, it's funny. Jim Duggan was totally in his surrogate Hogan role by 1990, where it was basically like, well, Hulk's not going to work the houses. Duggan will just be, you know, poor yeah. man's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and, but that's it. Like, and you, you kind of you can draw back to that and you can say, look at what this guy is doing. He survived what Andre couldn't. And he's destroying these guys. He might be the guy that can beat the warrior. And then and you build it up that way. You build them both up strong on both sides rather than having to weaken the warrior, which I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not sure people wanted that anyway. No, that wasn't his character. Like yeah. with Hogan, he had done boss man. He'd done Bundy. Those had both worked to varying degrees. I think it worked. Hogan was, while he was a superhero, he also did have a human side. The warrior, that was the ultimately the difference. That he didn't, you didn't view him kind of as a human being. You viewed him as like this, like crazy superhero who didn't really have a human side to him. There was no Clark Kent to his Superman persona. No, and so what's the attraction? It's that you have to build up a super villain who's who's as much of a threat as the warrior, you know, in terms of perception. So you've got to go all in on Earthquake as the most badass guy that we've ever we've ever seen. What do you have? My main one was was Hogan and Jake. I, I think that's the one that kind of that cries out. You can have Hogan again because Hogan had done some of those promos before WrestleMania, talking about you know the darkness in his eyes, and then afterwards you know the heart skips a beat, and have him maybe turn to Jake as you know kind of some guidance. You know again, you know, he, he lost to the Warrior. Maybe in in the same sense of you know Warrior, like the next year when Warrior goes to Jake for help against Taker. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to have Bury Me Snake Man here. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, outside, of, outside of Bury Me Snake Man, it it can be a similar thing. Where, and again, it depends on what the end game is. Because if you're thinking you're going to go to Hogan Warrior in the end with Warriors a heel for Mania Seven, which is kind of going off the beaten path. But if you're thinking that long range, I like the idea of Jake kind of. You know, he, he, he's me. Hey, that little bit of darkness you saw in Warrior's eyes is the same darkness you've seen in mine for the last you know six years. And then Jake kind of obviously he betrays Hogan. He's the snake after all. Do the angle with a snake bite. He takes the summer off. Somebody else can come to his defense, not tugboat. Jake can, can work with and get heated up. And then you obviously lead to Hogan and Jake. Right? Okay, my question yeah, my question was, are those both blow offs at SummerSlam then? Uh, Warrior beats Earthquake. Maybe you could get away with a DQ and Hogan and Jake to keep that going if you if you if you wanted to kind of keep that. Because I think mean, that would be the first match. So if there was ever going to be a DQ anywhere, it would be Hogan and Jake. Okay. 
any concern that the crowd would still cheer Jake as a heel? Because, you know, Jake always tells that story and no one has ever, ever been able to unearth the footage of when Jake DDTs Hogan in late 86 and allegedly the crowd was like chanting DDT. I would not be concerned seeing the way they did not cheer him in the slightest against Savage. I think that with Hogan and the strength of, of what he did anyway, when you look at his promos and the video and how, how hard they tugged on the heartstrings and, and, and how strong the snake bite angle would come off. I think that you've got the most vile heel you've ever seen. And plus people had been able to get cheering Jake out of their system for three yes. years. You know, exactly. Jake was one of the first kind of cool heels in the WWF. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he and Randy Savage, you know, a lot of heels, it was just, like you said, you build them up to feed to Hogan, then they just kind of, you know, gradually slide down the card and to the point no one cares. Jake Roberts was a heel that people liked. Yes. And, you know, they, they wanted to cheer him. The, the fa- there are very few instances um, of heels in this era of WWF that the fans turned. I wouldn't be worried about it either. Here's my second question. Big picture. How much do you really want to disrupt the booking of 1990 for a champion, that being the warrior, obviously, that inevitably was just never going to be as good as Hulk Hogan anyway? I think considering the direction they went, and again, the whole idea of this overarching three-part series is trying to turn away from the fact that they had to go so desperate at the end of the year. And I think they don't have to be so desperate at the end of the year if the summer is strong, which is obviously what what we're here for. And I think that if you are looking, even if you're looking in the end to go back to Hogan, you still want Warrior to be as absolutely strong as he can possibly be to make that match bigger. Regardless of which way you're going in the end, even if, because what's the worst that could happen? Either Warrior gets so red hot that you've got, you've actually got what you wanted, a guy that could replace Hogan. Or you get the scenario you actually were kind of thinking about where Warrior goes heel and you've got you know the guy that beat Hogan for the belt and now he's an asshole and, and this is like Hogan's toughest challenge because it's the guy that beat him. I think you win either way. Okay. Yeah, I, I, kind, of, I kind of think. I mean, there's no reason not to try. And I just think yeah. the lesson learned here is the Rick Rude feud just either had to be scraped entirely or ditched midstream. Pissing Rick Rudolph does not really upset the trajectory of this company very much because, again, he leaves. Right. So exactly. Rude is a moving piece. Oh, well, you pit, you lost Rick Rude. Well, you lose Rick Rude anyway. Yeah. A quick question. You put Rick Rude with Dusty, and I know we're going to get to Savage and Dusty here pretty soon. What do you do with Randy Savage then in the summer of 90? He's been beaten by Dusty in the mixed tag at WrestleMania six, you can't, so you can't move him up high. Like we said before, he's not feuding with Dusty anymore. Do you do what they did the summer following and give him the time off with Elizabeth? Okay. Okay. So here's one you mentioned before a guy that was gone that didn't have to be in Piper and they never did Savage and Piper. No, and I think they actually did a house show match the summer of 1990. Yeah, it was they? around this like, it was around this time they did one. Yeah, it was like on a world tour tape or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and so I, I think know, was it the one where Piper does all the airplane spins to Savage, Savage yeah. goes up <laughs> the top and falls off. 
Yeah, okay, that's an interesting tidbit. Yeah, Piper and Savage. And, and that's a deal where Savage doesn't need to be hot necessarily, I think, to feud with Piper. No, because Piper and Savage are kind of two peas in a pod. They, they're made men. They're going to carry it with the promos, and they're going to be self-contained. And that's a great B-show feud. It's brilliant. It's, a, it's, a, it's the ideal B-show feud for both of them. Because neither of them, and this actually bears out, when they were working with other guys, they weren't really doing that great. But together, I think there's a good chemistry there. And they're two stars. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I hadn't thought of that. I like it. I did have, I did have a couple of other... Uh, scenarios that are cheating somewhat that i did i did kind of warn you about this there was a name we mentioned on part one and there was something that happened in april that we mentioned in part one which was the joint show with all japan new japan and the wwf and there is a theory and it's espoused in the uh in the observer at the time that the reason that stan hansen volunteered to do the job to hogan was because he was looking to work in America and was kind of auditioning himself to get a spot, a top heel spot in the WWF. Now, shortly after, Ollie mm. Anderson gets in. Ollie Anderson gets in the NWA and Stan Hansen goes there. Now, the reason this obviously doesn't go, and when he goes to the NWA, he's, he's doing it between tours. It should be stressed. He's not there full time. And that's the issue, is that WWF would want him full time. But if you're them, would you take the gamble? Stan Hansen was friggin' awesome. He's incredible. In early 90s All Japan. I mean, that Kobashi match in, what, 93 is just like one of the best matches of the decade. And even like the one he had earlier in the year with Kawada is like really great too. Um, The thing is, though, you're not getting that Stan Hansen in the WWF. Of course not. Of course not. But I think it's... I mean, he's not not working stiff like that. Um, Hmm. And who does he work with then? Well, that's the question. Do you put him... Do you have him injure Hogan? Would you have the Lariat take out Hogan's neck? Would you do, would you put him with the Warrior? What would you, you know? I would I, not I, put Stan Hansen with the Ultimate Warrior. That no. sounds like a disaster. <laughs> no, well, that's my point. My point is Hogan's clearly the choice because what you can do is you can bring him in, do the angle with Hogan, and then spend the summer trying to heat him up for when Hogan comes back. Okay. And then but, Warrior gets Quake. Okay, yeah. Yeah, which, again, is an alternative. It's, it's completely... I don't think that's cheating. I, I wondered if you were going to go to, like, the Japan card somehow or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, very 2020 of you. It is indeed. It is very, uh, yeah. I, I, again, it, it didn't happen. I don't, I don't think it would have happened because they, they would have to have offered Hanson so much money to get into the and they weren't going to do that. You're right. And they, just, yeah. they weren't going to do it. So that, that's why I considered it cheating, because it, it never would have happened, and it never did. Okay. What idea of everything do we like the best that we've just thrown out here? You know, hmm. I think I do like the idea of the Hogan Warrior team, because I think that it gives you something on the house shows with Warrior and Quake as well, potentially at the same time. I think the double main event of Hogan and Jake and Warrior and Earthquake, if we built both heels up as strong as we've suggested, I think might yield the best results for the summer itself. Yeah, I think the Warrior the Warrior Hogan tag is something that disrupts what actually happens kind of the least. 
Hmm, and okay. it improves it slightly. You know what I'm saying? Like it, you, you, it's not leading to any sort of like re- you still got all the same fall options that they went with on the table. Yes. Um, you're just and po- potentially you are maybe elevating Warrior as because he's someone that Hogan needs to help him. And I think by I mean you watch the angle on that Saturday Night's Pain event when Bravo and Earthquake have the ring surrounded and Hogan's trying to stave him off. The crowd's hot for that. If the ultimate warrior runs out instead of tugboat, my God. Oh, that's yeah. That's the roof off the joint. You're oh, going to have yeah. one hell of a moment there. So I agree. I think it's either you do that tag match or, yeah, you do Hogan, Jake, Warrior, Earthquake. I think you pick one of those two. What about, I didn't. I guess we didn't even mention this, what if they just kept Hogan, Quake, and did Warrior, Jake? I think the dynamic is slightly different. If Jake doesn't get to take out Hogan, I think there you may have more of an issue with people cheering Jake, because while yes. we had while we had a little bit of bad will from the from the Hogan fans, yeah, and you're right. I, I just don't know. You know, we talked about well, what do you do with Warrior Quake since you can't do the Hogan Quake angle? Yeah, what do you do with Warrior and Jake because you you can't do a snake bite again because you can't take out your two, that's a heavy heat deal where you've got to have warrior take time off television and the houses to sell it. And you can't do that. And I got no interest. I got no interest in Jim Helwig expressing his fear for snakes. Yeah. And, and we know how that goes. Cause we saw that the previous, yeah, the <laughs> next summer and it doesn't go well. So yeah. Okay. I, I think that, that we've got either do the tag match or you do Hogan, Jake warrior quake. Yeah. We got we it. Got it. Yeah. We did it folks. We got well, there. Vince, the time machine. <laughs> After WrestleMania, we've got a lot of stuff. There's a lot of notes here about stuff that was going on with the other guys on the card at this time. Um, and after, you know, as we mentioned, after WrestleMania, Mr. Perfect gets the IC belt in a rather interesting tournament. <laughs> yeah, not a good one. No clean finishes, and you had two buys in an eight-man tournament. You did, yeah. They had a Double DQ and a double count out in the first round, so there was no semifinals at all in the tournament. <laughs> this tournament was really bad, which is not a surprise, seeing as it was a tournament put on by the WWF. <laughs> Other than King of the Ring 93, I don't think they've ever done a tournament the way a segment of the wrestling fans would want. Basically, like, you know, people who are used to seeing tournaments put on by other promotions, successful ones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, really, the most successful tournament WWF ever did was probably the Deadly Game tournament, Survivor Series '98, and the wrestling on that show <laughs> ranges from non-existent to abhorrent. <laughs> but it, it still works, but it's not, I think, you know, what people want out of a tournament, at least, especially with in the modern era. Anyway, I digress. Did you notice something about this tournament that was really odd? They do this deal where. Uh, Beefcake is wrestling Bravo. And Mr. Perfect comes out and causes a double count out. And the announcers put this over as this really brilliant move by Mr. Perfect. And they actually continue to do so for a few weeks after that match airs. The problem is the winner of that Beefcake Bravo match was set to... Tito Santana. Oh so basically, God. Perfect caused his finals, op- his, uh, finals opponent to get a bye. 
So it was actually the opposite of a smart move. Did were, were they confused on the brackets? Did they actually show the wrong bracket? They had to have. That's the only explanation. Did, that's the thing. If Perfect was supposed to work the winner of Beefcake Bravo, got them to a double count and got himself a bye to the finals, that story makes sense. What they did made no sense. And then you, of course, have the fact, this is a bit of interesting trivia, the Roddy Piper-Rick Martell first round match actually was taped after the finals. Oh, Aired. really? Yes. So, I didn't catch that. Okay, so the Piper-Martell match was the only match of the tournament to air on Challenge. It was taped the night after they taped the final between Perfect and Santana. Of course, you know, Perfect and Santana aired after, you know, it aired after the first round match because uh, it occurred later in its uh, Superstars tapings. But uh, yeah, they actually taped a first round match after the tournament was over. Not only that, but they forgot to bring the IC title belt to the finals. And yes. Perfect, when he wins, he's clutching the tag team championship belt. So uh, good stuff. At first, it kind of seemed like he was sheepish about holding it up because he knew it was not the right title. <laughs> but he, you know, Bobby Heenan comes in the ring, and we should talk about that in a second. And, and Bobby's the one who actually grabs the belt and starts showing it off to the crowd like, yeah, champion, champion. And I was just laughing because it was just so obviously a, <laughs> a, the tag team title. I, I did not pick up on that as a child, I'll say that. But like you said, Bobby Heenan, the fresh coat of paint. Goodbye, genius. Hello, Bobby. And uh, we got some magic here. Yes. Um, his trajectory wasn't a word perfect, I think, after WrestleMania. I didn't like the way he was booked uh, leading up to WrestleMania six, But here, fresh coat of paint, Bobby Heenan, intercontinental champion. I think this is what most people remember uh, of Mr. Perfect from this run. Absolutely. His, his 1990, just from his, his performances, and again, the package feeling right. This is what people think of when they think of Mr. Perfect. And it's it's one of the reasons, again, even though when you actually look at it, it's not like he has this incredible run of insanely great matches as the Intercontinental Champion, but people regard him as like one of the staple Intercontinental Champions of all time because of how, again, perfect the package was with Heenan. Yeah, and Heenan had kind of alluded to taking on new members uh, at WrestleMania 6. If you remember this promo he cuts after Andre dumps him. Yep, yep. He's like exacerbated and he comes in yelling at Gene Okerlund and he says, I'm going to get bet, show all you fans. This is going to be a new year for the Heenan family, new members. And he already had the barbarian at that point. So this I am assuming was in the works because they had figured that the intercontinental title was going to be vacant. And I, I, I'm just assuming they decided, well, we'll put it on perfect. Kind of interesting too, that Jesse Ventura, when they announced the brackets and they asked his, who do you who do you think school? He's like, I definitely think Mr. Perfect's gonna win. And he did. <laughs> uh Jesse, Jesse never let himself look like too much of a fool. Yeah. Um, in the final of Tito and per Perfect, it's funny. Uh, Vince McMahon refers to Tito as the favorite. And Jesse Ventura wants to know, quote, what bookmakers have you been talking to? <laughs> God damn, I love Jesse Ventura during this period. Yes. It is tragic what happens. In yeah. 1990. And there's some great chemistry you can tell between Perfect and Santana in that final, as short a match as it is. And we then get to see that on full display 
I was so glad you put this in your notes because I think it might be my favorite WWF match of 1990. The match the two of them have on Saturday Night's main event in July is great. Yeah, that crowd is so hot in that match. Yes, and it didn't feel like, you know, the seagulls, the fake noise popped in. You could see the crowd was really reacting to all the near falls because you didn't get a lot of those two and nine tenths. No, no. Back so- in this year of WWF. And there was a lot of near falls. That was something that, like, Shawn Michaels really popularized in, like, 93 on Raw. His title yeah. offense is there. This was, like, really fresh. And, yeah, the crowd was hot for that match. Like I said, it might be the best WWF match of that year. Not like there's a lot of competition. It's a match where they, they get the crowd going absolutely crazy. They do a lot of near falls. And then they, it keeps going. And the crowd keeps with them and it's just it's a, it's a good long match if there's one takeaway from this show from uh, from people who don't know that much about this year check this match out i think my favorite part of the match is when the second referee runs down bobby heenan tries to like tackle him <laughs> i thought that was so outstanding and w- <laughs> i can't believe they've never i mean i know they don't have managers but there's you know people outside the ring now i can't believe they've never stolen that for another match especially during that you know that 2001 2002 period where they always have the second ref come in oh yeah after a ref bump i can't believe i never saw that again it was just so great when like they show around and bobby heenan tries like grabbing onto him and oh it was unbelievable (laughs) uh so and so we'll come back to mr perps in a second elsewhere shortly after wrestlemania the savage and dusty matches as we mentioned they were drawing pretty poorly in early may it was penciled in for SummerSlam to have a six-person match with Savage, Sherry, and Brother Love against Dusty, Liz, and Sapphire in a six-person match. Savage was against it because he didn't want Liz to wrestle. Um, but you can see when you watch on television, they are kind of leaning towards this with, with Brother Love saying, if you ever need any help dealing with this, I'll, I'm here, I'm, I'm backing you. Basically hinting towards the six-person, and thank God it doesn't happen because if there's one thing that i took away from 1990 wwf there is way too much brother love yeah i have a tape of 1988 wwf television and it had a lot of brother love on it too because i mean it was on superstars every week and it's one of those things that after a while when you're watching you know week after week and you're binging a particular year it kind of gets old especially like i mean obviously you remember some of the big angles that happen on the brother love show but when it's just kind of a paint by numbers interview and you see a few of those in a row it it kind of does great on you they, they did do a house show match where elizabeth and brother love were in the respective corners of the teams and they did the mm-hmm. mixed tag again well yes that's correct uh i believe that was on that was the may 12th match in chicago that drew 4,900 people which doesn't bode well as expected to pop houses over the summer as the big b show feud but uh yeah brother live on television as uh, gorilla monsoon once said kyle a little bit of that went a long way for me <laughs> yes he said that about run dmc did he not he did indeed <laughs> yes one of the one of the great subtle gorilla burials of run dmc <laughs> and then Je- Jesse, of all people, like trying to be like the good soldier. Yeah, I kind of liked that. <laughs> but um, I wanted to talk about B and C shows because they were still doing C shows at this point. Yes. It's not till later in the year that they kill them. Compared to 88, because I think it's relevant to do so because Hogan was on hiatus in the summer of 88. So... This Savage Dusty program, I think the reason it didn't work is because it's just naturally tough for a house show few to draw when the baby faces have already gone over 
in a big TV match, as Dusty and Sapphire did at WrestleMania six. Yes. Now they did, and I had kind of forgotten about this. They did an angle shortly after Mania where Savage and Sherry do a beatdown of Dusty and Sapphire on TV. It's like two weeks, I think, after WrestleMania. And it led to some good promos from Dusty talking about how Sapphire, uh, you know, his sweet Sapphire, how you don't do that to her. I was kind of stunned by how good some of Dusty's promos were after that. But still, you had the deal where Dusty and Sapphire had already won, and I just think the crowd had seen it. This wasn't a great feud that I think a lot of people were clamoring to see anyway at Mania and I wasn't surprised that it drew poorly when you had that in the notes quite frankly yeah I'm, again stunned they went with it as long as they did frankly um, yeah, and I, that's kind of the story of the summer of 1990 isn't it that these programs with the exception of boss man DiBiase were really stretched out over long periods yeah, and, and that was another one too. And and I don't believe it's anything that I really even highlight in the notes because it doesn't really get a television blow off ever is the Ted DiBiase vignettes where he is going around Cobb County, Georgia, asking to find out what kind of prison guard boss man was. And of course, they're all giving him bad reviews. Uh, but as it turns out, he's obviously just paying these people off to basically run down the boss man. Okay, so that was like the C-level house show main event, was it not? Yes. Or was, was that? Okay. So let's compare B and C shows of 1990 to 1988. I think right after Mania 4, you had Doug and Andre and Honky Beefcake, correct? Yes. Okay, I, I somebody actually shared it on Twitter. I said, oh, perfect. I don't have to do the research. I can just use this. So, <laughs> this. And then Jake and Rude w- was subsequently used later i think i think that kind of took over for doug and andre okay i think so here we've got uh dusty and savage as the b and then boss man and dibiase as the c how do we compare the two years b and c show programs is one does one stick out to you as being superior then the other interesting that the intercontinental title which perfect and just one isn't even main eventing house shows yeah that's kind of one of my big takeaways to be honest is that again perfect wins it and he doesn't really move into anything hot straight away even though he's got it um meanwhile and again as we mentioned on part one boss man was put in that spot because people were having trouble drawing on the sea shows now they tried it with dusty it didn't work tried it with duggan didn't work they moved to Piper, and that wasn't even all that impressive. So this was an experiment with Bossman putting him in with someone strong like DiBiase. I don't... I... I guess 88 stronger. Again, Honky had a lot of heat. Yes, he did. So here's another way to look at it, okay? They wound up doing Duggan Earthquake over the summer, too. Mm. Just because Duggan is two years older, I think that's a weaker program than Duggan Andre. Oh, big time. Okay. You look at the Intercontinental title, Honky Beefcake is bigger than Perfect Beefcake, which they'd go to. Yeah. Um, I don't think Boss Man DiBiase, well, I kind of did like the feud, and you can see some of their matches on Coliseum videos, but you're right, there was no TV blow-off. That program was not as good as Jake and Rude. No, not at all. Uh, Jake and Rude was... You know, very much, you don't want to say an attitude era style feud, but 
it was like a 1988 version of an era, Attitude Era feud. You know, with a guy wanted to have sex with another guy's wife and the pants yeah. getting pulled down. So I think the story just is, when you look at the houses, it's kind of a trickle-down effect. Warrior Rude just couldn't compare to Savage DiBiase. But, but I guess then we left out to bring it back full circle. Savage Dusty, what was the official B-show feud of 1988? Was it Doug and Andre or was it the IC program? And how do you compare Savage Dusty to either of those? It feels like Honky Beefcake would... Ah, then again, it's Andre. Yeah, and Andre, keep in mind, a couple months later, he would work Hogan at the big Milwaukee show. Yeah, and that still does well. Yes, so... Honestly, Doug and Andre, feels like because it was feud. a fresh feud, feels hotter than Savage and Dusty. And that... The crowd ate up that angle where Doug had knocked him out with a two-by-four. Oh, they loved it. They were going crazy for it. So, yeah, I, I think across the board, A, B, C, I think these feuds in 90 just don't compare favorably to the their 88 counterparts. Not looking good. And what doesn't help is the Bad News Brown uh, trying to kill Damien by hitting it with a chair uh, before Jake makes the save, obviously. No death for the snake yet. Um, as you <laughs> mentioned here, Kyle, wouldn't be missed. No, this feud would not be missed if one were to hypothetically turn Jake. Very paint-by-numbers and something we'd already seen with another heel, the aforementioned Andre the Giant being scared of Snake. So I hated that feud. That's like one of my least favorite feuds from 80s WWF is Jake Andre. And was actually worse here. I, I don't know how that helps the heel to be scared of Snake's. No, especially because it's not I, like it prompts him to do anything. He just, oh, uh, sorry, the sewer rats. <laughs> My mistake. Yes, we did have the Harlem sewer rats. I mean, I guess with Andre, it showed a kind of vulnerability. I don't think it was good, but there was like this vulnerability that you'd never seen from him before. Yeah. And I guess yeah, that was a so. novel. It wasn't good, but it was novel. Here, I, I don't know what benefit there is of having Bad News Brown, who's kind of a badass heel, or supposedly a badass heel, being scared of snakes. No, it, it, it feels like Bad News is kind of done in 1990, to be honest. It feels like he's kind of exhausted his options. and Maybe it's because the Piper thing just kind of you know, fizzles out as well. And he hadn't done anything in 89 either, after no. a few ends. So it's, it, he was kind of running on borrowed time, and he is done by the end of the year. Um, they do, however come across a new idea for a tag team as Paul, Roma, and Hercules are going to get a push as a low-level face team. This is just after WrestleMania, this uh, gets noted. Um, a success, for the short term at least, I feel. Interesting. I assume this quote's from Meltzer. Yeah. Okay, that he has them as, quote, a low-level face team. Now we know they wind up being a heel team. Uh, Bruce Pritchard in his kayfabe commentaries said that Hercules and Paul Romo were friends, and they pitched this idea of them being a tag team. Now, presumably, I don't think they pitched them being a low-level team. <laughs> but, you know, they came to management. If you remember, Hercules was kind of running on fumes as a babyface. Yep. Paul Roma, they'd been waiting for him to break out since 1985. So here are these two guys. They go to the office and say, hey, how about putting us together as a tag team? And they did. And I'm going to get to my thoughts on Power and Glory in a minute because you have an interesting note on a reaction they got at a house show. 
Indeed. Now, uh, originally, they were given a trial run as babyfaces. They did a match, and it aired on television in March or April, where they actually had them as a babyface team. Then they vanished. They come back. They do the angle. They actually, yeah, they 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 teamed as babyfaces in a squash match in like April, and then you don't see them again as a team until they do the angle with the Rockers, where Roman Hercules kind of heal it up and beat the hell out of him. Now, as they get moving as heels, there's a house show in Utica, New York on April 15th and the crowd cheers power and glory in a match against the Rockers in and New York. We would, and we, well, and we'd see that again big time at SummerSlam in Philly. Absolutely we do. It that is, was uh, like, that was, it was not quite dynamic dudes Freebirds <laughs> from the previous year's Halloween Havoc, but for a WWF audience in this era, that was about as heelish an audience as I can remember. They, like, <laughs> there are no, there are almost no instances of heels getting baby face reactions in this era WWF. But that Philly crowd at SummerSlam was all about power and glory. And they squashed the Rockers too, which really kind of, you know, gets them only more of a baby face reaction. When Paul Roma puts the one foot on the chest at the end and people are just popping for the win. And it's funny because it's not like it happens elsewhere in the show. It's just that match. Yes. I can't, I can't you're right. A, no other point. heels get cheered on that no, show. You're, you're right. It, it, I mean, hearts and demolition, you know, hearts are big time baby faces. Yeah. It's the one time that people cheered the heels. Um, I liked Power and Glory actually a lot initially I, I you know the, they did have that disastrous performance on a coliseum home video where they were working out and referring to each other as power and glory and there were some overtones that i don't think exactly were intended for <laughs> but initially they came across as a hot team but i do think it was the right call to have them work heel despite some of these initial reactions from the crowd they were both better as heels as we, Her, hercules was not a good baby face I mentioned earlier he was running on fumes as a babyface in 1990, and Roma was definitely better as a heel. Yeah, there's no there's no question there. From his horseman to his young stallion, there's there's no one there's no one that's longing for Paul Roma as a babyface. Yeah, um, I'll talk more about Power and Glory in part three. Okay, but I definitely think they should have gotten a title run late in the year. I think they should have been. Um, the team to beat the Hart Foundation for the titles. We'll get to that when we talk about the Phantom title change and the Nasty Boys coming in and stuff. That's a part three thing, but I'm going to really stand for Power and Glory in part three. All right, I'm digging that because I love the Powerplex and I thought they had momentum. Yeah, yeah that, that's the other thing too. They had a great finish, the Powerplex. Something I did not remember from the turn is the week before um, Hercules comes out to like help Roma, yes. Roma, and they beat up the and they beat up the Rockers. That's the actual turn. Like Roma had been beaten down by Dino Bravo. The Rockers are the next match. They come in. Roma's still in the ring. Vince McMahon does a great job selling this thing. Oh, I guess we're a little premature here. Rockers out, and Paul Roma's still in the ring, and Roma's shoving the Rockers away. And Hercules comes out, and then Hercules and Roma attack the Rockers. And I remember kind of always thinking and remembering that angle, that seemed kind of out of nowhere that Hercules just ran out and helped Paul Roma. 
Like, where'd that come from? Well, like, the week before, or two weeks before, Hercules actually teamed up with some jobber against the Orient Express. That's right. And after that match, Fuji and the Orients were beating him down with the cane, and Roma made a save. So I had I, I had totally forgotten that. It was interesting, too, as for why Hercules was teaming with the jobber. They covered for it by saying the other jobber didn't show up, and Hercules just took the match on no notice. And that shows you what kind of competitor Hercules is, which was interesting because it makes you think, did they not yet know whether Power and Glory are going to be babyfaces or heels? Because that's yeah. a total selling of a babyface. Sure is. I mean, and again, originally, and even in the, in the, 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 the match they did, they were babyfaces. And it looks like... When that save happens, hey, this this is a babyface. He's saving them against the Orient Express. Yeah, but then the Rocker, obviously, when they, you know, do the thing with the Rockers, they're intended to be heels, and uh, they were hot at first. I mean, you watch that SummerSlam match. You, you mentioned the finish, Roma pin it with the one foot pin. Tell yeah. me that you don't think these guys are in line for a title shot. They look like superstars, even when they're leaving the ring and, and Sean Seven like crazy. They look like superstars when they leave that ring. Yes. And, and look, if anyone wonders of why that match was done the way it was, so one-sided and with Sean on the outside the whole time, Shawn Michaels had a knee injury and couldn't work. Yeah, blew his knee out of him like a couple weeks before. Mm-hmm. And, and ironically, done. who replaced Shawn Michaels uh, on some house shows teaming with Marty? <laughs> I believe it was the dynamic dude himself. Yeah, Shane Douglas, future adversary. Shane Douglas. <laughs> Meanwhile, elsewhere, we got vignettes after WrestleMania, and they run for a while, uh, and they're actually a bit more raunchy and, and kind of suggestive than I thought for arrogance. <laughs> yes, Rick Martel <laughs> kind of getting a character. You know, it's funny. I watched the when I the six man that he does at SummerSlam '89 with the Rougeos against Tito and the Rockers. That's a great match. It is, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, did Rick Martel need a character? He's a great heel here, but you know. It's 1990 WF. You're going to get a character. And he made this work. I love the one. I love the one where he's, at the, he's playing tennis and he's talking about how this will get you in the royal box and you'll score every time. It's fantastic. Yes. You know, can you just imagine like Vince and Bruce just laughing their asses off off camera <laughs> and stuff? Oh, it's tremendous. And it's a shame because they are going to go with Tito and Martel. It's on the lineup for SummerSlam 1990, a little bit of trivia. But uh, Rick Martel was missing dates due to some nerve issues in his arm. He couldn't even lift 15 pounds uh, of weight with the bad arm. So he ends up getting replaced by the Warlord in a very forgettable match. Yes, and thus Tito Santana does jobs for both former Powers of Pain members on pay-per-view in 1990 because he had lost to the Barbarian at WrestleMania. (laughs) He's, He's still the bookie's favorite, though, for some reason. Yes, yes, still the book, the odds-on favorite, Tito Santana. <laughs> Tito deserved better. Something that, as I throw a pen at my dog here who's scratching, <laughs> might, as well, <laughs> I might as well ask him if he remembers the pepper angle of 1999, if you want to keep scratching. <laughs> well. um, it, Tito Santana deserves to be talked about as one of the great workers of this company from 1984 to 1990. I have a real appreciation of this guy that I did not have at the time. I mean, his feuds with Valentine, uh, Savage in 86, that's one of the great house show feuds of all time, in my opinion. Um, You know, even his Strike Force, which, you know, is kind of a forgotten babyface tag team, they have these great matches with the Islanders in the fall of 87. 
Tito Santana was in some of the great matches of this year. The one we talked about with Perfect in July. Love Tito Santana, Ariba. <laughs> And again, you can always uh, you can always enjoy the commentary in a Tito Santana match if uh, if, if Ventura is on the call or or Heenan for that matter. Yes, yes, it, Heenan was still in the, even in the El Matador days. Remember the uh, <laughs> WrestleMania match? You, you know, uh, you know, Santana's tights look like guacamole. <laughs> Stuff you could not say in 2020. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Well, I guess you could if you have Raymond Noodle Moon salts, but do 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 do. Yeah, some, some things change, some things don't. But it's the uh, it's it's the the more you strike and the more English you get out of him. Line from here. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> there's some uh, there's some there's some old classics, if you will. Don't age well, but there you go. Um, now, when it comes to you know new talent on the shows or at least new moves, a, a, a as strong as Power and Glory felt as an addition to the tag team division, Nikolai Volkov and Jim Duggan. About to become a tag team, uh, Nikolai Vol- This I could not believe how much TV time Nikolai Volkov, uh, the turn of him, the dissolution of of the Bolsheviks gets. This got way too much focus. This was the only thing worse than the Warrior Rude feud. Honest to God, it's- upon my rewatch of the summer nineteen ninety, this was the absolute low light of the summer. The Bolsheviks explode. Uh, although I do love it. <laughs> I do love Vince kind of mirroring current events with the downfall of the Soviet Union (laughs) and how the dissolution was teased. Did you catch some promos where (laughs) Boris constantly referred to him having that pure Soviet blood while Nikolai was a Lithuanian? (laughs) That was moderately amusing, as was their first singles match. So you've got no uh, stake in this game. Mr. No. Englishman, so let me ask you, did you have any sort of emotional reaction when right before the first singles Volkov-Zukov match, Nikolai runs to the ring, picks up the microphone, and busts out the Star Spangled Banner? <laughs> it blew me away. It blew me away. <laughs> Vince tried so hard to sell that, and... You know, I will say this. Some people in the crowd did get into it, but it was a Boris Zukov as a singles? (laughs) I couldn't believe You know what? I I, I wanted to rip on this so bad. I really did. When they do the Brother Love show and Duggan comes out and endorses him and gets the crowd chanting USA as he's waving the flag. And even, even, and we're diving into part three here, even on the Saturday Night's main event in October when Volkov waves the flag during the Slaughter Coco Beware match, or afterwards, I should say, I, I was kind of floored at how people were into it. It also looked like Nikolai was having the time of his life. He did enjoy being a baby face. He had he a big like smile on his face. That said, did any of these late career baby face switches ever work in WWF? I keep thinking like these guys who had been just career heels and they're nearing the end of their time and Vince maybe doesn't know what to do with them or... In this case, you have this breakup of the Soviet Union, so I, I assume that was the impetus. And plus, they were they wanted somebody to job to slaughter in the fall. Those never work. You know, I'm thinking like Ken Patera coming back as a babyface. He'd always <laughs> been a heel. That sucked. John Studd coming back. As no, a that was a big flaw. Didn't work. Volkov here, you know, he's been around forever as a heel. He turns babyface. You know, Don Morocco. Greg mm. Valentine. These things never work when this guy's been around forever. And it's like, well, I guess we'll just give him a shot as a baby face. 
they're old. They can't work. Initially, I think they get a bit of a reaction because people are so used to cheering or booing them. But, you know, their skills have declined so much that it, it never works. And this tag team was not good. They have a very bad American Express joke at SummerSlam, Volkoff and Duggan, that rivals the milk joke that Buster Douglas <laughs> made of that. How about the Boy Scouts of America giving the Medal of Freedom to Volkoff? <laughs> Nikolai seemed moved by it. A lot more moved than I was. <laughs> I think you might have been able to pinch out a tear. Yeah, he was trying. I just, yeah, I was shocked how much TV time Volkov, Zukov was getting. And, like, it was kind of odd, too, because Volkov didn't necessarily come across as a baby face until he sang the national anthem. Like, when they broke up, they started shoving each other around after they lost a match. And Volkov kind of, like, kicked his ass. And <laughs> Volkov ran away. And the only way you would think Nikolai might be a babyface is Jesse Ventura, like, started sticking up for Boris Zukov. <laughs> but it didn't really, like, just, if you would have watched it with, like, the commentary off, you wouldn't have thought that, like, you know, hey, I want to cheer Nikolai Volkov now. Yeah, this is it. I can't get this out of my head. It's like, who gives a shit about the Bolsheviks? Yeah, who gives a shit? Yeah. Honestly, like, <laughs> they, they, they jobbed in 10 seconds at WrestleMania. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like, Volkov, I don't know why, but Volkov's hilarious to me. Because he's like, he, yo, with him like... <laughs> I've lost it. He just puts his fists up and he starts waving them around wildly. <laughs> he does. You've lost it. I, do you have this on in the background or something? My God, you've lost it. I can picture it in my head and it's like fucking Boris Zukov. Like it's a single seal. Volkov is a baby face. You talk about skills declining. I'm not sure he had skills to decline in the first place. And yeah. he's there. Him, him and Duggan is a team. Again, that promo before they wrestle the Orient Express at SummerSlam. Where you've got like Volkov cracking wise and Duggan, whose left eye is still off looking for Sapphire, I think, at that point in the show. <laughs> yes. We'll find her, Dusty. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, in the end, it was me and Gene that found her. So thanks, Jim. Yeah. I, I just pictured Jim Duggan leading this gaggle of lower mid card wrestlers around the <laughs> Summer 790 locker room yelling for Sapphire. <laughs> we also, having said that though, before we get to SummerSlam, there is a big moment where Bruce Beefcake, his career is in jeopardy after a July 4th boating accident, uh, ends up requiring 10 hours of surgery uh, as a woman was preparing to parasail, a gust of wind blew sand in his eyes, uh, very untimely, and at the same time the boat took off, the girl flew up in the air and with tremendous force hit a high knee to the chin. The blow was so severe it broke his jaw, shattered his nose, broke two cheekbones, and two bones near his eye. Uh, the person who took him to hospital had to stick his hands in Beefcake's mouth to hold the roof of his mouth from collapsing, which would have suffocated him because of the nose and mouth damage. Uh, Twelve plates put in his head, bone taken from his hip to reconstruct his face, and a tracheotomy in his throat to help him breathe through the whole thing. A one-year to 18-month recovery time is given, and it might be a career ender. And wasn't the guy who took him to the hospital B. Brian Blair? That's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, this was obviously pretty serious. Uh, and Beefcake did not truly return to WWF television until 1993 for the build of WrestleMania 9 uh, and Hogan's return. That would exclude, of course, the aborted Mariner gimmick in early 1991. Yes. When he, Do you remember when he this? Decided. When a random masked wrestler would come down and start headbutting people? Like Rick mm, yeah. Martel in early '91, it was Brutus Beefcake. But I think Beefcake got hurt again. He hurt. He suffered another injury 
they said, or they just weren't confident in the facial reconstruction yet to let them work. So that was just dropped. And yeah, Beefcake, tough break. Um, you know, out, you know, longer than 18 months, he was out uh, basically two and a half years. Yeah. So 30 I mean, I- months. And again, as much of a bit of a joke as he is uh, for, for his WCW run, this was, I mean, it was over and it was bad timing. There's no, there's no other word about it. There's no, no bonus about it. Yeah. Bruce said he could not remember if Beefcake or Perfect was going to go over in the original uh, booked program for SummerSlam. Because that was the Intercontinental title match originally for SummerSlam. Perfect and Beefcake. Um, Kerry Von Erich, who we mentioned earlier, was brought into the company. Uh, he gets the spot and beats Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental title. Was that the right call? So, on the night, it feels like it. I'll say that much for it. In the aftermath, when you see Kerry's promos, a little shaky, I'm not sure. I guess I was kind of shocked, looking at the timeline, how long Kerry wanted to holding the title oh I thought for sure month, for sure i thought it was a month shorter than it actually was and i guess it was just a deal where with tv tapings it probably was a month shorter than it actually was in real time but yeah it it did feel right that night and i gotta say this as a 10 year old kid when summer summer rolled on i remember like they kind of teased K- carrie might get the spot i was like really all about it because i really did not watch hardly any NWA WCW until a few months after this. Hmm. I remember like kind of following it, you know, a little bit in the after mags. You know, I remember when I saw Ricky Steamboat had become a world champion. I thought that was really cool because I really like Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. But I did not watch generally the TV, you know, despite me referencing a couple comments from my dad, he nor my mom liked wrestling at all. And it was always kind of a fight to watch as much of it as I could. <laughs> and the syndicated stuff was not really on a reliable time slot here in Cleveland. Okay. And we only had one TV that had cable until a few months after this. Watching the stuff, it was tough, like watching, like my parents would be home on Saturday night. We have one TV that has cable. They weren't going to go ahead and let me watch the Saturday night stuff. So I remember very vividly the first big show I remember being talked about and WWCW was Halloween Havoc. But anyway, I, I went on that rabbit hole. <laughs> there is a reason here. Like I said earlier, I had watched plenty of World Class because that was on at like four in the afternoon on ESPN. And so I knew Kerry Von Eric when he came in. And I thought it was like really cool that he came in. So um, yeah, I, I would have told you at the time, oh, this is a great move. And you know, it didn't really work for Kerry. He probably should have dropped the title sooner. Yeah, it didn't pan out. Again, on the night, though, it feels like it works. The short match, the story of the match at SummerSlam, it feels like it's kind of two for two on getting new acts over as SummerSlam starts. At least to me, it feels that way. And again, the, the promo afterwards where Perfect is furious and Heenan is just livid, getting exasperated with Gene Oakland backstage talking about how they weren't ready. And I, I think it, it plays out really well on the night. But again, the follow-up... It's a little bit troublesome. Yeah, so. and it also, Kerry going over at SummerSlam kind of follows that old Vince booking pattern of when there's a switch, the baby face goes over. Yeah. Uh, another switch took place right before SummerSlam. Uh, for reasons nobody is clear about, as you've alluded to previously, Bossman is replacing Tugboat. This is, a, 
I think, believe in July, uh, as Hogan's cornerman in the main event against Earthquake. It was not part of the original plan, as all publicity material was printed listing Tugboat. In fact, virtually the entire summer was spent linking Tugboat with Hogan. Uh, the word is that Tugboat's quick rise to stardom swelled his head, and Vince was trying to give him an attitude adjustment. Uh, and at the same time, it allowed them to build the grudge match for Tugboat and Earthquake matches in the fall. Uh, he was not making any dates until after the pay-per-view. Now, I know that you've got a note on whether or not this is actually accurate. Well, who knows if it is, but Bruce Pritchard in the kayfabe commentaries denied the punishment story, which I had never heard before, believe hmm. it or not, until your notes and uh, I went digging. I had just always assumed, going back to when I was a kid, that Hogan really no longer wanted to be attached to a loser like Tugboat. <laughs> and he just wanted the newer, hotter babyface, the boss man, to be in his corner. Regardless, Tugboat's trajectory from this point forward, all downhill, uh, leading up to him being booed soundly at the Survivor Series, <laughs> which we'll get a pay-per-view we'll get to, obviously, in part three. But yeah, the crowd really was shitting on Tugboat. And... You know, it's funny, I just, from that reaction Tugboat was getting and, you know, the switch, I just always assumed that Hulk's like, I don't want Tugboat coming out with me at this big pay-per-view. Give me somebody else. So, who knows? I I had never heard that punishment story ever before. Well, I mean, and the other thing is, if it's not true, which it may well not be true, but why would you go for for that long only to pull it at the end? You know what I mean? It just seems strange, timing-wise. It was two weeks before SummerSlam that they did an injury angle with Tugboat. And then like the weekend of, I think the boss man was introduced officially as Hogan's corner. Cause he made the save for Tugboat when he got beat up by earthquake and Bravo. And then Hogan brought him out brother love uh, on the the subsequent uh, superstars. Boss man. We've mentioned it multiple times. His feud with DiBiase just kind of goes away in the middle of the summer. They they ran all those vignettes, and then it's just never talked about again on television. Instead, Bossman is not only in the corner of Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam, he works as a special ref for Jake and Bad News. Which, again, doesn't go anywhere, really. No, he didn't. It's not like he started feuding with Bad News in the fall. And it kind of, that kind of plays in. The fact that he had that dual role does kind of play into this being a very late, out-of-nowhere change because it did kind of feel odd to have Bossman having these two non-wrestling roles on the same show. I know he you know had momentum having just turned babyface, but even as a kid, I was like, that's kind of odd. He's, you know, he's going to be on this show twice, but neither of them is a wrestler. It wasn't like it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb in a bad way. I, I do want to give a bit of credit there. I know that you were a big Bossman fan from this time as well. Yes. It, it actually, you could make the argument that him being involved in two separate angles that weren't his kind of added to his mystique. Yeah, it made him feel like a big deal to me. Yes. Like, oh, like you got to have the big boss man. Like even in a kayfabe sense. Not like, you know, just, oh, you know, I'm like reading behind the scenes and, you know, big boss man's hot. So they're going to add him to these these roles. Because of that, but like even in a kayfabe sense, it's like, oh, well, you know, the big boss band, while well, they, he, Hulk Hogan wants him to be the, you know, in his corner. WWF's putting him as the special enforcer referee. Like, oh, the big boss man must be a big deal. Yeah, felt it. Felt it at the time. Uh, we're going to get now to a couple of uh, comings and goings in the company during the summer of 1990. Some good, some bad. So in May, it comes out in the observe that the Road Warriors are coming in. 
Uh, fresh off Hawk having heart problems, apparently, and having a resting heart rate of 180 when he was examined <laughs> by an athletic commission. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, the Road Warriors apparently have had an, offer to, an open offer to come in for a while, but the holdup was always that McMahon would never guarantee a salary for them, nor would he promise not to change their gimmick or their name. Uh, the word was, when they were coming in, they wouldn't be called the Road Warriors anymore because of the Ultimate Warrior, uh, nor would they wear face paint, and this does get changed, uh, and they would be called the Legion of Doom. Uh, so curious there. And the initial word, again, another big uh, kind of scoop here. Original plan for him to come in his heels to feud with a babyface demolition. That was something I was unaware of. Yeah, but I was very interested by that. We're going to find, well, well, the next part we're going to get into, really starts to define the WWF Tag Team Division in 1990, a certain individual and their health situation. Absolutely. So, while Hawk has a resting heart rate of 180... Uh, <laughs> Still at... kicking over that. <laughs> hmm, what's going on there? Uh, Axe of Demolition, currently out uh, in early May due to an, a heart injury of his own, problem with a heart valve. Uh, so he's on the sidelines, and they bring in Brian Adams from Portland, uh, first as Demolition BA uh, on, a, on a non-taped event, by TV time, he's demolition crush and he's ready to go. They decide they're going to do the Freebirds gimmick, but mostly with Axe on the outside. And at this point, they make the shift. They decide that demolition are going to be the full-fledged heels uh, with them having the extra man. And the LOD get to be faces after all. Uh, again, a little side note here. John Nord, who got to be the Berserker, was who they were originally looking at for the role of crush uh, because it was Smash's suggestion. They knew each other from Minnesota. Uh, but when they got to Nord, Nord actually suggested Brian Adams for this position. John Nord is the third member of Demolition. That would be interesting. <laughs> I guess, I guess. Okay, uh, it's not worth much of my thought because regardless, with Crush being added to the unit, I always kind of viewed this as the downfall of Demolition. It was mm -hmm. a practical move in light of the axe injury. And if you want to turn him heel, you have to do something like this. But I, I remember as a kid being very confused because I always liked Demolition. And I was like, why are they doing this? <laughs> like, I didn't read newsletters, obviously. I didn't know anything about an axe heart in injury or a heart issue. So I was, it, it kind of made no sense at first why they would just bring a third guy in. But having them watch the TV, I do have to say it kind of worked with the Hart Foundation and building to that match, which was very good at SummerSlam. Yes, so the Hart Foundation kind of hit the, uh, the the point several times about how it doesn't really matter what the odds are to them, they'll go through any odds. And it's it's funny because, again, my memory of this prior to this watch-through was the demolition turn kind of fell out of nowhere anyway. They had a lot of momentum you know, doing the three-peat at WrestleMania six, mm -hmm. and then And then all of a sudden, it's like they, they're not really doing a lot. And all of a sudden, the third guy comes in and they, they, again, they go on the Brother Love Show, because where else do you go, apparently? And they start just talking about how they're just, you know, this is the way it is now. <laughs> and we don't give a fuck about anybody else. We don't care about the odds. The odds are in our favor, so why would we care? And it's just a very strange shift. I don't necessarily think it doesn't work. But after SummerSlam, the demos are pretty much running on borrowed time. That is the key. So the three-person gimmick did work at SummerSlam against the Hart Foundation, 
But in terms of the quote-unquote dream feud with LOD, it was a huge hindrance. Big time. Because LOD and Demolition, if you're going to do this dream feud, you have it's got to be like Axe and Smash, the stalwarts against Hawk Hawkeye, you know, the invaders. And that's not what it was. And that's, I think, a contributory factor why, spoiler alert, that feud did not work. Interestingly enough... LOD Demolition is one of the very few times Vince put the quote-unquote competition over quote-unquote his own creation. That had a lot to do with Axe's health issues. And we'll talk about this more in part three. Axe's health issues really, really shape uh, this tag division uh, in more ways than most people probably remember. I wonder if he doesn't have his health issues. Do they stay face? You get no crush. LOD comes in his heels. Do the hearts turn in the summer? Because we talked about this a little bit in part one. The Heart Foundation on that first Saturday Night's Main event when they act the when they work the Rockers, they're acting as the heels more so mm. than the Rockers. And there's kind of this period early in the summer where this feud is not talked about at all on television. It's very much heated up late in the summer, the weeks leading up to SummerSlam. Once I think Crush shows up in like the first week of July. But May and June, this is kind of a thing on ice where I think they're kind of playing it by ear with Axe and whether or not LOD is going to come in. And then everything kind of just falls into order and they do what they do. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it didn't. I said it in part one. I think the Hart Foundation, they were they worked out very, it worked out well for them. Winning yes. the titles as baby faces at SummerSlam. Crowd was into it, but the LOD demolition program, as we're going to talk about at a different time, did not work. Now, there is a huge loss for the company now because Jesse the Body Ventura, uh, about a month before SummerSlam, goes on Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA show uh, and says that he and Vincent Mann were negotiating for a contract which runs out soon and they weren't getting anywhere. Ventura said that the way things look, he won't be doing any announcing uh, for much longer. And sure enough, about two weeks later, Jesse's gone. Uh, the big story is the video game situation, but it was more of a, a stubbornness thing. The video game situation was that Vince had a, a, a computer game out with Nintendo. I think Jesse had signed up for one for the sake of Saturn that was going to use his likeness. Uh, Vince, for some reason, saw it as competition or at least used that as an excuse to try and tell Jesse that he couldn't do something. Uh, it comes very much across like it's more stubbornness than actual economic issues uh jesse didn't want to be told he couldn't do something without a good reason vince couldn't give him a good reason but di- but but didn't want to be seen as backing down either he'd put his foot down and this kind of minor situation turned into a complete impasse in the contract negotiations and jesse's done before SummerSlam. yeah i think two weeks before is his last appearance on the syndicated uh television as a kid i remember being very sad when I figured out Jesse Ventura was not around anymore. You know, Roddy Piper is his replacement and quite frankly, did not come close to filling Jesse's shoes. He does SummerSlam Roddy, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I, I don't know when I would have realized it as a kid. Cause I just can't go back in time, but it's like, you know, Roddy's doing the commentary with Vince. And then I, I'm sure there was some point I realized I'm like, whatever happened to Jesse Ventura? <laughs> and he just, you know, it's not like they mentioned it at all, obviously. He's just he's just gone. 
He does go on to become the mayor later in the year of it Brooklyn does. Park, uh, Minnesota. He does indeed. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. Again, because with my uh, kiddie goggles on, I didn't think that Piper was that terrible at the time when I, when I first saw it. But when you kind of contrast it with how great a job Jesse did, especially when you watch the whole year back and you see how important Jesse is in so many ways, he's just that that voice of credibility over the years. It just seems like such a void when it's gone. Yeah. Um, I just think they didn't know what Piper should be. Bruce mentioned that sometimes Piper would just babble incoherently. They'd let him do it and I don't think Piper knew what he wanted to be. I don't think the company knew what they wanted him to be in that role. It yeah. wasn't a good role for him, despite the fact that Roddy Piper's a great talker. And he'd done great commentary in the past. I think Bruce Solely. Yeah, Bruce said he was the one who came up with the idea of Piper replacing Jesse, thinking he'd be great in the role, and he just wasn't. He worked better in a three-man team. Now, not the disastrous three-man team that would be unveiled later in 1990 with the Honky Tonk Man. That was first things ever. But in 91, with Vince, him, and Savage, that was okay. Just because it seemed like one of those two would always have an issue going on, and the other one would always kind of like talk to him like a friend. I also loved Vince... And Roddy being the peanut gallery when Savage proposes to Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Go on, do it. Come on, do it. Oh, I think he's going to check it out. No, he's going to do it. Yeah. That's really good. Um, you know, Savage, who was suspended from wrestling at the time, you know, who had, he'd lost a retirement match, being the voice of reason for Roddy not going after Flair. Well, uh, Piper getting involved in the Savage Jake deal. That kind of worked okay. And then Piper also definitely worked with Gorilla and Bobby. Oh, that worked great. Playing off Bobby. I mean, SummerSlam, if there is one time that Roddy Piper absolutely works on commentary, it is SummerSlam 91 playing oh, off Bobby Heenan. It's exceptional. Mainly because Bobby Heenan says, I heard a rumor that your parents ran away from home. <laughs> Bobby Heenan is incredible on that show. Yes. And then, and then yeah, and Piper goes, Gorilla, I don't have to sit here and take this, do I? And Heenan goes, no, you can leave. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, see, that it's again, it's the dynamic. When he's with Vince at SummerSlam, it doesn't work so well. Because Vince is the company shell anyway. And so it's like, Piper kind of, just, they don't bounce off each other well because they've both got different interests. Whereas you've got like Heenan and Piper kind of playing off each other great. Piper and Savage path each other well because they're both trying to get each other over. And then you got the other guy there, the third guy in Gorilla or, or Gorilla or Vince, who can just kind of get to the point, which was kind of, it always felt like Piper was kind of taking away from the point a little bit when he was on commentary. Yes, he was going down his own kind of trajectory. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only other real big move, if you want to call it that, is Sapphire, expected to be history after SummerSlam, uh, and Dustin Rhodes is on his way in. So this, which actually does happen, they do the thing all over the summer where Sapphire does these 10-second promos where someone bought me a, a bracelet. I don't know who, but I like it. And that's all you yeah, get. Or, it's like, yeah, or somebody bought me a cruise around the world. <laughs> I don't know who keeps getting me this gifts, but keep them coming. And it winds up being Ted DiBiase. And yes, yeah. uh, Sapphire leaves after SummerSlam. She had run her course in that character. Again, maybe this is because I'm getting old and soft. I didn't hate the Sapphire character as much as I remembered on this rewatch. 
I, especially like her deadpan response when Dusty was cutting those promos on her behalf against Savage and Sherry. Yeah, I, I, she, she's not bad at I mean, again, she doesn't have to do a lot. She's there just to be the foil for Dusty. And when Dusty's the one with all the fire, it works out great. And again, when they actually do the angle at SummerSlam, Dusty's promo, I love that promo. Whatever you think of Sapphire, it was just the right time for her to leave. And, you know, D- Dusty obviously wanted Dustin to come in. I liked Dustin Rhodes in that DiBiase feud, even though it was short-lived. Now, we've kind of run the gamut here for a lot of the stuff that's gone on on screen uh, throughout the summer, from the middle of the card to the top of the card, the moves in and out. The other aspect of 1991 and why things kind of went the way they did, the World Bodybuilding Federation, things got a little bit quiet on this front for a little while after WrestleMania. We mentioned uh, in part one the squashed story that did not take place in the Toronto Sun that was going to be written the week of SummerSlam, uh, talking about the the, the steroids and drugs in the The week of Mania. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So things kind of seem to simmer down a little bit here. Vince obviously has his ideas for his bodybuilding magazine. Uh, by mid-July, Vince's impending publishing had that industry a buzz, says Meltzer, over a potential feud with McMahon and Joe Weider. Uh, lots of the bodybuilders are talking that McMahon actually plans to promote a big money contest and give them the kind of TV exposure or do a pay-per-view that would blow Weider out of the water. So while they are struggling massively at the gates, uh, Vince has kind of got one eye off the ball anyway. Uh, he's kind of looking at maybe delving into this world now. At the start of August, and I'm not sure if this is because Meltzer kind of knew that something was going on, but he wrote a big piece in the Observer. It's, it just seems like it's completely out of nowhere about the potential risk that the WWF would face if the steroid issue came to light. And his kind of main takeaway, which ended up being pretty accurate, was it might not have a necessary direct customer impact, which, again, that's kind of debatable. The structural impact of the advertisers and NBC maybe pulling out and things of that nature would hurt them a whole lot more. Uh, and maybe kind of the subsequent nature of the fans not seeing the same bodies um, that they have been used to seeing may play a role. But it's very interesting here that this kind of comes up. And as we will see in part three, this actually becomes a real thing. Yeah, two things. One, God bless anyone that does. I hope I don't offend anyone. I- why would Vince McMahon think I would ever watch bodybuilding? <laughs> or like, and like me as like 10 year old wrestling fan, like what, like, I, I mean, look, I'm Ford now. I wouldn't want bodybuilding. Yeah. Not my cup of tea. If it's yours, God bless you. But I, um, I think, that's I always think... something I thought. Like, I remember like when this first started being on television, I was like, Oh, okay. And then I was like, wait, bodybuilding. I don't want to watch that. Did you ever watch Body Stars? Maybe once, and it wasn't good. <laughs> I wasn't interested in what they were selling. So, should the WWE have been, or WWF, have been more proactive about the steroid issue at this time? Phasing out big bodies. I, I just think that's not a realistic idea. The company yeah. felt it was pretty Teflon. Like we could say that because of what happens in 1991, but until Zahorian goes up the river, I just felt they had this Teflon feeling to them. All oh, that's not going to affect us. And we also know from the mid nineties, quote unquote experiment, it would have taken a massive retraining of the audience for them to accept quote unquote, smaller wrestlers as headliners if the audience was willing to accept that at all. And we know they really never did. 
numbers dip significantly. And I think a 1990 WWF audience, if all of a sudden you started pushing some smaller guys up the card, might have been like, what is this? Yeah, I, 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 I feel the same. It's very easy to sit here and say, well, they obviously should have uh, you know, cut steroids out or punished people for taking steroids or whatever. And I know that there's some kind of sentiment at the time in the newsletters about that too. So I'm not going to say that it's, it's not a complete uh, 2020 vision, if you will, uh, perspective. I just don't think that it's realistic. Like you say, it just seems like it's one of those things where they built their company off the back of it. It's kind of the way that it was since the start. And I just don't think they were... I mean, history has shown Vincent Mann is more reactive than proactive, always. And he wasn't going to change unless something forced him to change. Yes. And... um yeah, I just I, I think that why break something if or why fix something that's not broken? Precisely. They had them at least yet. At least at least yet. And you know, I think you brought up an interesting point too with the you know, Vince kind of having one eye on the WBF, one eye on the WWF. That's not good for the creative, in my opinion. No, not at all. Bruce said that everyone in the office knew this was gonna be a flop, which is interesting. Because they're, you know, you note some of the notes that people think it's going to be a big success. And Bruce may be just saying that because, I mean, this, he obviously did that interview years later to save face. But um, kind of interesting when you, you know, in the modern age, you hear about these Vince outside endeavors and you just kind of roll your eyes and say, yeah, how long is this going to last? It could be a deal where at the time people wanted to seem positive or it could be at the, you know, in the modern era, Bruce didn't want to seem like he was an idiot and thought the WBF was going to be good. So, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 quotes. I know we have a doozy to end this program with. We do. It's, it's the superstar of 1991 quotes on steroids. It's Hulk Hogan who offers this. And I couldn't, unfortunately, I couldn't actually find out where this actually came from. It's just written in the Observer as a quote. Out there in the world of professional sports, there's a lot of temptation. There is a lot of big money involved. And you can see a lot of people out there taking shortcuts to get ahead. The hardest challenge, says Hulk Hogan, was not to take any of those shortcuts. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Unbelievable. And we are going to, there's a lot more Hulk Hogan putting his foot in his mouth. But again, it goes to show this attitude of complete denialism, it was there all along. Yeah. And the cover up is always worse than the act itself sometimes. Not always, but. <laughs> sure is here. Um, mm -hmm. So as we wrap up, we've talked about the summer. We've talked about a lot of the, uh, the the issues that were troubling them. Kyle, your final kind of takeaways on the summer of 1990, as you've evaluated it, was there a better solution that would have helped out the Ultimate Warrior, would have helped out the company from the very lethargic state that they were in? You absolutely could have helped the Ultimate Warrior. How much that would have improved the company as a whole, I think, is up for debate. And as we'll talk about rolling through part three, the company's still okay, but they then make the most disastrous creative decision they have made since the start of the national expansion, and that will dominate our part three um, talking points, and uh, it gets gloomy. Sure does. It sure does. We got all that to talk about. We got Vincent Mann officially entering the bodybuilding world. Some other interesting exits from the company, uh, and a whole lot more as we rally for the final 
1990 into WrestleMania 7. Yeah, and of course, I was referring to those famous four words, Sergeant Slaughter, Iraqi Sympathizer. <laughs> oh yeah so all that's look forward to on part three coming up next week uh i want to thank everybody for listening kyle again fantastic contributions here on part two thank you so so much for doing the show i do what i can man <laughs> again a, a, an extra long shift i didn't know if this is gonna be as long as the last one but it turns out it is yeah it, right on the board I, I knew it would be there was a lot to talk about well hopefully we gave you your money's worth folks so thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week see you later